For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. What's up, North? I mean, the Barons in the league of the Savannah Bananas. Yeah, the Savannah Bananas too. Exactly, and they're they're everywhere. And they were they were big when I worked in college summer ball. And I mean, I worked for the Doc Spiders too, which is another one. You know, That's, one of the few teams named after spiders. And I looked it up, and that was horrifying. The yeah. one I you want in real life. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun to look at the logo. I like the Doc Spiders logo. Like we can we can just start with that because that was one of the the questions we planned to ask you. Like you previously worked with the Fond du Lac Doc Spiders. Like, so what was that like, and how did you end up with the Shuckers? Well, I think working for the Doc Spiders was was so big because it really got me exposed to what it's like to be a number one uh, in a minor league baseball setting. So prior to working in Fond du Lac, I'd work with the High Point Rockers, um, an independent team um, in, in the Atlantic League. And you want to talk about wild and wacky logos. High Point at one point in time was the furniture capital of the world. And the logo, it, you see there's the Green Bay Rockers of the Northwoods League, which used to be the Booyah, which used to be the Bullfrog. But that's like yeah. a guitar rocker with a pick and everything. But the High Point Rockers was a rocket-powered rocking chair. The mascot, the mascot was a horse. It was a rocking horse. So, you know, met plenty of random wild minor league team names that have worked for, but I was the number two um, with High Point. And, and that was such a great opportunity to be fully thrust into what it's like in, in minor league baseball. I mean, Logan Morrison was, was one of the first guys I ever mm. covered um, in the professional side of baseball. Um, you know, or guys like Mitch Atkins who pitched for the Cubs. Um, you know, there are so many guys, David Robertson even pitched an appearance, uh, pitching an appearance for us uh, back in 2021. Um, but that was such a great opportunity, you know, learning everything on, on the back end about, you know, working in minor league baseball. Um, and then that that step up to, to the Northwoods League was being a number one. That, that was kind of the big step was to being that solo number one, pretty much the exact same role I'm in now in Biloxi. Um, this season, just a little bit shorter. And the schedule's a little wackier than the one it is in minor league baseball. 72 games in 76 days. You get six off days, three of those the all-star break, and one of those uh, is the top prospects game. So there's really only two off days throughout the entire season. Um, but getting able to – being able to learn that, learning from my GM, uh, Jim Mishidek, uh, with the Doc Spiders was, was so insanely massive. And the way the Doc Spiders run is it is an extension basically of the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers up in Appleton, which – Mm. Worlds colliding. I now work for the Brewers Double A affiliate. Worked for the team that was owned by the Brewers High A affiliate. So it all it all comes full circle. Um, mm-hmm. But being able to learn from Jim on the media relations side of everything, he was someone who's worked in in Major League Baseball media relations for over half his life, um, and to be able to learn from him on the media relations side and to learn what it takes um, to be a, a number one. Uh, in that minor league baseball setting and having the Doc Spiders really run similarly to how it's run in Appleton with Rob Sergeab, which just named the, the executive of the year, minor league baseball. Yeah, baseball yep. So to be able to be in that kind of organization after being in high point, you know, was just so incredible. And I learned so much about, about being a number one, what's it like on a daily basis. And that really helped prepare me in a big time way for, for joining the Shuckers. Um, so I originally joined the Shuckers as a, a number two broadcaster. You know, the plan was for me to be there uh, just for the 2023 season as an assistant under Garrett Green. Um, but with about 
three weeks to go before the season. Garrett got a huge promotion. Uh, he ended up getting hired uh, by the Sugarland Space Cowboys, who also a former Atlantic League team. They were the Steers. <laughs> Um, now, now the space Cowboys, the AAA affiliate of the Astros. Um, and he was able to, to, to become their number one there. Um, and you know, I, I re-interviewed for, for the position to be the number one. Um, and then with about uh, maybe two weeks before the season started, um, I was officially promoted to, to the number one, uh, in Biloxi. And, uh, we're going to, I mean, we're going to talk about it a lot through the rest of this episode. I mean, I was spoiled rotten first year with the amount of talent I got to yeah. see and, and guys that got to be around. <laughs> Um, but to, to be able to, to be in high point and learn everything about how to be in sort of that older clubhouse, I think our average age was about 30, 31, um, in high point. And at that point I was 20. Um, so to be able to learn what it's like to be around former big leaguers and kind of mm-hmm. that, that professional clubhouse, um, in, in indie ball with, with the Rockers and being able to just learn that grind of a season. Cause I was still going to school while working for the Rockers. Um, so to be able to, to learn how to do both at the same time, um, when I got to the end of the season and high point and I was like, well, I mean, this just, you know, it was a lot with school and, but if you took the school out of it, I'm perfectly fine. Um, so going to, to Fond du Lac and doing it without school, um, you know, prepared me in such a big way. And it's kind of all been building up to, to now working with the Shackers and being able to work with, with our great front office and Hunter Reed, our general manager, you know, has made it such a terrific place, uh, to be in and to work and with the Brewers being the affiliate, um, you know, I can't say enough good things about everybody in the brewer system from the coordinators to the broadcasters to, to everybody top to bottom. Uh, it's just made it so much fun to, to be in Biloxi and it's really been building off of, you know, five, six years worth of experience from the Cape Cod league with the Wareham Gateman to the Rockers to the Dax Spiders and, and down to Biloxi with the Shuckers. You got your eyes on the big job one of these days in the future. That's that's always the goal, you know. The, the obviously, <laughs> you know, you wanna you wanna be where your feet are. Um, but you know, for all of us in minor league baseball, the the dream is is to be a big league broadcaster. Um, and, you know, that's been that's been my dream. Um, you know, you know, throughout throughout my life, really ever since I realized I probably wasn't going to be the starting catcher for the New York Yankees, and that was about age twelve. <laughs> um, so you know, be that's always the dream. Um, and you know, the those building blocks are, are kind of what helped to get there, along with you know tons of reps and experience and feedback from so many people um, uh, across the industry really makes it, you know, terrific to, to be in this setting. And, and it's so great to be in Biloxi um, at my age, because that's that's not something that happens to too many broadcasters. Um, so to be able to to be in that position at my age is just so special. Um, and, you know, the credit goes to so many people um, down the path from from day one of my career, you know, up to here. Well, when you'll have to you'll have to stay there for a little while and wait until Bob Euchre retires at the age of 143. So yeah, right. Bob Euchre's not immortal. <laughs> it feels like it, doesn't it? <laughs> All right. So last time we had you on, we talked exclusively about Jackson Churio, and we talked about that there's going to have to be some some clearing of space for him. So we knew that there was going to have to be some trades to take place in the Brewers outfield for that to be a reality of Jackson Churio to make the opening day roster. So with the Tyrone Taylor trade happening to the Mets, do you think that that guarantees Jackson Churio a spot on the opening day roster? You know, I think what they said and what we heard a lot in his introductory press conference is really indicative of how they're going to handle Jackson Churio. Now, if he comes out spring training and just struggles, which I don't think anyone really expects that considering how he's been the last 36 months and how he spent in winter ball in Venezuela. Last time we were talking, he was just finishing up his time in Venezuela and was hitting the cover off the ball. Um, 
but to to see that from from Jackson, I think is a really big thing. And I think hearing the Brewers talk about how hey, we're going to go into spring training, you know, nothing is earned. I think mean, that's that's a great thing to to kind of make him prove it uh, in spring training. But I, I would be pretty certain that that Jackson Churio is somewhere on that that twenty six man roster um, come opening day, uh, especially if he has a really good spring training. Obviously, he'll be able to be in big league camp. Um, which I believe this is going to be, this will be his first year in big league camp. Um, so to be able to, to be around that atmosphere and be able to, to learn from the veterans, be able to learn from guys like Yelly, um, I, I think is really, really big for, for Jackson. And I think being able to go through a full big league spring training, um, you know, if all goes well, he holds his weight, everything is good. I think there's a, there's a really, really good chance he's on the opening day roster. Um, and one of those 26 guys who start out the season. Yeah, I, like I agree. So Jackson's obviously the star, right? We all are talking about Jackson, but there's another, there's a couple other guys that we're going to talk about. And the first one is Tyler Black. My uh, man. People should be excited about him. But from your perspective, what stands out about Tyler Black? I just think his willingness to work his butt off every single day. I think that was one of the big things I saw this year. And obviously it was a big breakout year. The speed was there. He stole 40 bases in the first half of the season. <laughs> At one point, I think we did the math. At one point he was on pace to shatter the Southern League record for stolen bases by like 30. Now obviously he slowed down a little bit second half of the year, but 40 stolen bases before the All-Star break is ridiculous stupid um just just <laughs> dumb numbers like just video game slider numbers um from Tyler but I think you know all the the big parts of his game are because of his work ethic and I think that's a really big thing we saw it this year um in Biloxi he came into Biloxi playing third base he'd never played third base in his career before but he's willing to play whatever position and I think he he probably led all of minor league baseball and ground balls taken um just it was every single day him and our manager Mike Carrera would go out there and it would be ground ball after ground ball after ground ball and he'd be working on this working on that every single day um and, and that's not something you you see from everybody and to have that drive to want to play a position that you've never played before to want to work on another position in first base that you had never played before and the fact that he didn't even have a glove he was borrowing West Clark South Carolina glove that he had that he's been using his whole career on um, one of his backups when he was learning how to play first base that's not something you see from from every single player so to be able to to see how Tyler has taken on the reins that's something that, that's really going to bode well at the upper levels of the minors um and in the big leagues as well and I mean we all saw the stats this year it's it's ridiculous well, what he did um and how big of just an explosion um it was from him this season but I think you know that work ethic really plays well at the upper levels and really plays well at the big leagues where you know, you're seeing every reliever throwing 100 plus miles an hour. That that ground ball that's coming to you at third base is a little bit faster um, than where it's coming to you at Lexi. And that work ethic, you know, plays such a such a big role uh, for Tyler and, and how his development has been so far, and, and hopefully how it progresses um, in his big league career. So, what, in your opinion, would he have to get better at to to say make the big league roster? Like, I'm pulling for him to make opening day, but what what do you think he would have to show to do that? I think one of the big things for Tyler, the bat's big league ready. I think the bat was big league ready by about midway last year. It was just a big kind of FBI mission impossible mission. Not impossible, but but you know one of the, the James Bond movies of finding Tyler Black a position. And I think in doing that, he now plays a ton of different positions. He can give you some outfield depth. He can give you some stuff up the middle. That's where he was drafted at. Played third base all last year and – 
he spent about three weeks before he got called up. I'm not sure, you know, what it was like in AAA, but in AA, he spent three weeks learning first base. So that gives you, you know, you count on your fingers, all four infield positions, the outfield. That's five or six different positions. Um, and that's really, really big. You know, that's a guy like Noah Campbell that was with us this past year that's so big for him at the upper levels is that he can play pretty much any position. And for Tyler's bat, if he can just be serviceable at a number of different positions, that's what gets you on the big league roster. Because if you have a guy that – is going to steal you 40 bases. And if he plays first base and he steals you 40 bases, that's ridiculous. Um, yeah. But the the speed, the 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 OBP ability is nuts. Um, but to combine all those things together with being able to play defense in multiple positions, and I'm sure that's one of the big things he's working on this offseason, really bodes well for Tyler to make the big league roster. Because the more Swiss Army knives you have on your roster, the easier of a job it makes Pat Murphy's decision of, hey, where am I going to play you? If you can play six different positions, you're going to find yourself in the lineup a little bit more than a guy who can just play one. True that. Yeah, then you just look at who needs a day off and then say that's where Tyler Black's going to play. Exactly. And then if you're Tyler Black, you're going to end up playing 120 games because you can fill all the gaps for everybody who – needs a day off. You know, you might not play 120 games at third base, but you might play 70 games at third base, a couple more in the middle infield, a couple more in the outfield. So, you know, that gives you that flexibility to kind of play everywhere and force yourself in the lineup, you know, with the bat and, and you know, bat to ball skills that are ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited for Brewers baseball. <laughs> we still have a couple more players to go through. <laughs> so the next person I'm going to ask you is about Jefferson Quiro. Did I say that right? Quiro? Jefferson Quiro. Carol. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm I'm not the name guy. Tyler is the name guy. (laughs) He nails every single one. And I'm just like, I don't know how you do that. You're a magician, but uh, Jefferson Carroll, what stands out to you about him? I really have a hard time. Like in, like, I know he's 20 years old, but it's, I have a really hard time on mine going, yeah, that's the baseball IQ of like a 19 year old, 20 year old behind the plate. The, Knowledge he has of the game, the ability he has to handle a pitching staff, the ability he has to handle pitches, and his arm. Like, he was without a doubt the best defensive catcher I saw all year by a long stretch. It got to a point where nobody, like, his. if you look at his stolen base numbers, he threw out about 35% of guys. But the amount of stolen bases attempts, the stolen base attempts that guys had against him was so much less than everybody else across the league because guys just stopped stealing against them. They're like, well, you're going to throw me out. I'm not going to steal against you anymore. <laughs> but the way he was able to, to work in and mold this pitching staff in Biloxi and to be able to work, and obviously minor league baseball, it's a little different than a big league rotation. I think last year we carried as many as 15 or 16 different pitchers. You can't do that on a big league roster. You're capped at 13. But uh-huh. his ability to handle guys coming in and out, new guys coming in, um, and to be able to, to work with everybody on the staff to call a great game, his framing's ridiculous. Um, and his defense behind the plate is great. And that's not even talking about his offense yet. His offense is terrific. He's got a lot of power. Um, you know, he's one of those guys that just is big, strong, hit the ball a million miles. They went over the light towers in Biloxi this year. Um, <laughs> You know, it's he's a guy that really checks off all the boxes for for a really, really good catcher. And the defense plays such a big role at the big league level. You know, we've seen guys who can't hit at the big league level be catchers and regulars at the big league level because of how good their defense is. Caro could hit a buck 30 and he'd probably still be a big league catcher with how good he is behind the plate. The fact that he can probably hit you probably 750, 800 OPS on an average year is really, really good to see from Jefferson and how he was able to improve throughout this year as well. 
So now on him too, is it maybe maybe just experience or what what is something that he would have to work on to to make the major league roster? I really think it's experience. You know, it's a lot like Jackson where they're they're young guys. I mean, he was born in 2001, 2002. You know, he's a really, really young guy. Um, and I think that's one of the big things for him is, you know, he'll just get more experience at the upper levels. And I think that's why, you know, you saw this past year, the Brewers being patient with his development because you don't need to rush him. Obviously, you have a really good big league catcher on the big league yeah. roster. You don't need to rush him to the big league. So that is able to give him time to work on things. And obviously, he had a bit of an injury this year. That kind of, you know, stalled the development for a bit. Um but his ability to, you know, the, the defensive side of the game to be able to mature more and more and more. And by the time he gets to the big league level, you know, whether it's this year, I'd assume he starts in AAA uh, for the 2024 season. You know, whether he comes up in 2024 or, or starts out 2025, you know, the Brewers are able to be patient with him and able for him to get more experience. And his baseline is already terrific at 20. So what's the baseline going to be at 23? It's going to probably be pretty darn good. Yeah, I like that. So we're going to talk about another guy who was born in 2002. This guy's 6'7". He has a great fastball, a disgusting slider. His name is Jacob Mizorowski. Tyler got me on his hype train because this guy is going to be fantastic. So Welcome. Welcome to the hype train. <laughs> so to you, let's, let's hype it up even more, my man. Uh, what stands out about Jacob Mizorowski? I mean, first off, you can't. it's really hard to lose him in a crowd. He's 6'7". Right. It's, it's, he's just – you know, 800 feet tall. And then he gets out in the mound <laughs> and then he, you know, starts throwing bullets. You know, he's throwing a side pen when he first got to Biloxi the first couple of days and he's throwing sliders and we're like, Oh, Oh, it's 93 in a side <laughs> session. <laughs> what? <laughs> Everything, you know, he, not only is he a great pitcher, but he's such a great, great human being as well. Um, and I, I think that that goes such a long way in the baseball world. And I think that's what, what goes such a long way for him. Um, as well as he just is such a fun guy to have around the clubhouse. Now, obviously, sadly, his time in Biloxi this year was, was kind of a bit short um, with the arm fatigue the back half of the year. But yeah. his final start of the year was the best start I've, I saw from any starting pitcher this year. Um, you know, the yeah, top like 11 two, strikeouts. Jacob Mizorowski's 12 strikeout game. And then Tobias Myers is 10 strikeout, five and a third, no hit innings and in opening night. Well, that was one and two. Um, and, and to see Mizorowski do what he did. And I think one of the big things is him just adjusting to the level, adjusting to the ball. Cause we use the big league baseball at the double A level. Um, so the seams are, are really, really flat, um, you know, adjusting to, to that side of things, you know, uh, just the mounds, the, the players, the, the guys are a little bit better at double A than they are on high. And that's such a big jump. So to learn that, Hey, if you miss a little bit in your slider, it's no longer going to be, you know, maybe a guy rolls over. It's going to get punished. Um, you know, that side of thing. But I think one of the big things for him was just being able to, to calm down. We saw that later on in the starts of like just breathing a little bit, being a little more comfortable at the double A level, being a little more comfortable with the mounds or the, you know, the catcher he's throwing to and, and just that sort of stuff. Um, it went a long way. You know, the, the big thing that stands out obviously is the fastball, the slider combination, but he's got three or four really good pitches. Um, and, and that's really big. You know, he's not one of those guys who has two good pitches. That's it. He throws hard. So we're going to the pen. He's got pitches to work on. He's young enough to add some more as well and refine those pitches to become uh, a big league starter. And he was able to stretch out a good bit this year. And it's the most he's ever pitched in his life. So you think next year, um, this year he threw what a hundred around a hundred innings. Um, 
you know, next year he could probably be stretched to 130, 150. And if all goes well, you know, you got a flamethrower who has a white belt slider and, you know, it's just terrific on the hill for, for your big league team. And that doesn't come around too often, especially him. It was what the sixth round yeah. absolute steal by the Brewers in the draft. The, the Juco guys, it's like it, it, a lot of him reminds me of Brandon Woodruff. Yeah. No, I, I think one of the big things, too, and you talk about the Juca guys, and I think that's one of the really good things the Brewers do is their scouting department is incredible. I mean, you found Carlos Rodriguez yeah. and Jacob Mizoraski at junior colleges, which is terrific. And, and that's, you know, your hit rate on junior college guys may not be huge, but you're able to get um, Mizorowski in, in, what, like the sixth round? You're able to get Carlos in, like, the second or third. Mizorowski was the second. Carlos was the sixth round. Um, you know, you're able to get those guys. And that's such a big credit to the Brewer scouting department because you, you come down to Biloxi and you look at the rotation, you're like, oh, and then you have Abner. <laughs> I mean, first half of you, you have Abner Rebe coming to the pen throwing 103. Tobias <laughs> Myers turned into a reliever when he went up to Nashville for his last couple appearances. His fastball is averaging 96 and they signed him for a minor league deal after, you know, he had a really tough year at AAA um, in, in 22. So, you know, the Brewer scouting department just continually is able to find those gems um, whether it's at the junior college level, the international level, you know, the what they're able to find um, is really, really big. And Mizorowski's, you know, hoping to be another success story um, for that Brewer scouting department. He's certainly been a real fun one so far. So I don't think it's going to be in 2023 or 2024, sorry, that we see Jacob Mizorowski. But what what might he have to do to make the roster in, say, 2025 or even late 2024? I think the big thing for him is just always going to be command. Um, obviously, stamina is a big part, um, and, and he'll get that, I think, with more experience and more innings on his arm. Um, but the big thing is that command. Um, you know, last year he, he hit a lot of guys, walked a lot of guys and at the double-A level. Um, but his last couple of appearances, you could see those flashes of, like, what is really, really good Jacob Mizorowski. Um, he had a start in Pensacola. That was his second-to-last start, where first time through the first inning was shaky. And then two, three, four, five was just filth. Nobody was touching. It was a big league arm on the mound for innings two through five. And that's just consistency. And that control comes with consistency. And all the consistency comes, mm. same thing with Carroll. Is that more experience? And for a guy like Mizorowski, the way to get experience is really easy. Throw more innings. And that's something the Brewers are, are really good on getting him. And I'm sure, I'm hoping we'll see at least a couple of them Biloxi next year, at least to start off the year. Um, if all goes well, I'm sure he'll be up to AAA uh, in, in a flash if he comes out throwing 102 and wipe out sliders. And nobody can touch him, and it's a month, and he's got a zero ERA in 30 innings. Um, but, you know, he's he's just so much fun to watch, and I'm excited to see him next year um, in Biloxi, likely to start, and then we'll, we'll see where he goes from there. I like it. I like it. So we're talking about all the big dogs, right? But now we need a little bit under the radar. Who is a player not currently on the Brewers fans' radar that we should watch out for in the next couple of years? Oh, is Wes Cork on the radar? I like it. I like it. Let's start. So the two two guys are, are really big. Um, obviously, Carlos is going to be one of your big guys. Yeah. Um, but Wes Clark and Noah Campbell this year were, were really, really great. And we'll even throw a third, Tobias Myers. Um, would, would be the 30 set the single season strikeout record with Biloxi this year, um, mm -hmm. struck out over 160 guys and his fastball averaged, um, in the upper nineties throughout the entire season as a starter. Um, and, and Tobias is a guy where he got, I just talked about a moment ago, switched to more of a relief role, um, with Nashville, the back half of the year. And that might be one of those things where they go, Hey, you're going to throw an inning or two a night. 
throw 96, 97, and he's got, you know, a couple different pitches he can go to that are really, really good. Uh, but whether it's a starting role or a relief role, Tobias is a guy that that fastball velocity really, really gets in places. Um, and we saw him get in places at the triple A level. So if he does go to the bullpen this year or if he stays as a starter, um, you know, he's a guy that could be able to refine some things and get to the big league level quickly, especially that fastball. Because um, you know, 96, 97 mile an hour fastball as a starter in double A is not something you see um, too often. And then Noah Campbell is a guy that's a lot like Tyler Black, where he can play everywhere. Um, so. And he everywhere, everywhere. Um, you know, you look at his baseball reference page and it quite literally says he's played every position. But the reason why he's played every position is there was a game, uh, the final game of the Carolina Mudcats season in 2021 against the Fayetteville Woodpeckers. He actually played one position each inning and played all nine positions, got the save on the hill, caught an inning, awesome. played all nine positions. But he can really play a number of different positions. He can play first, third, up the middle if you need him to, all three outfield positions. Um wow. And he's a guy with really, really good bat-to-ball skills. He's a guy that's a lot like Isaac Collins. Um, he was a bit on the older side for double-A this year. I think he was just barely above the average age in double-A. But he had a 430 OBP um, and had more walks than strikeouts. By oh, I love that. Um, so, you know, he was another guy that's really, really good. And he's a sneaky good defender. Um, and what the Brewers got for him was they just took him in the minor league section of the Rule 5 draft uh, from the Rockies. So, you know, it's not like they traded for him or anything. Um, they, they gave whatever the cash amount you got to get to get a guy in the Rule 5 draft from the minor league side to the Rockies. Um, and we're able to get them. You know, him and, and Noah are two guys who, um, you know, have really, really good bat-to-ball skills. Isaac's eye is ridiculous. He was able to get a bit more power uptick in the second half this year. Um, as well. And then Wes Clark. There was, I think, one guy who had more home runs in the second half of the year than Wes Clark, and it was Matt Olson. In baseball, like minor league wow. baseball, major league baseball. <laughs> I haven't looked at the NPB or KBO in Japan and Korea, but he was <laughs> one of the best power hitters in baseball in North America uh, in the second half of the year. Um, Wes's thing is he his power is ridiculous. He had a ball this year in in Mississippi where it actually broke the Hawkeye. It's say like three sixty. We did out the distance again. It was like four seventy five. Um, you know yeah. he's got big time power. He was terrific in the fall league this year. Um, him and Eric Brown Jr. were a really good duo in the mm-hmm. fall year for surprise, helped lead them to a title. And, and Wes's ability is just ridiculous at the plate. You know he ended up. I think he led the team in walks. He he's a big you know he's a big TTO guy. Um, walk strikeout home run, but he walks a ton. And this year he had a ton of homers. Um, it was the most he had in his career, since his college career, 23, his final year at South Carolina. Um, but Wes is a guy that, that will just, again, more maturity and such at the upper levels. But he's a guy who could really explode onto the scene, especially in that first base department, um, could really explode with that power. Um, the big thing is just getting that strikeout rate cut down a little bit. And then the sky's the limit. Um, you know, it's the walk rate is nuts and the home runs are, are a lot of fun. Yeah, I've, I've actually been – I wrote his name down. I don't know if I'm going to quite include him in it, but I'm going to be looking at uh, what the Brewers are going to do with the corners, and he's in my list of guys who could be a solution as a prospect. 
Yeah, and he's another one of those guys. And and this goes to to just show like what the Brewers really value in, in prospects, not only in the talent, but Wes is just an all-time great human being. Hmm. Um, you know, he he's just always awesome to, to have around the clubhouse, see around in BP. I think that's another one of the big things. That was a big thing in Biloxi this year. So many people um were just terrific. Um, and that's something that I've seen up and down the brewer system from the coordinators, uh, the people who come into Biloxi from Milwaukee or the people at the lower levels, they're all just great people and great human beings. And, and Wes definitely fits into that category as well and that's that leads perfect into the next question we wanted to ask which is who is your favorite player to talk to on the shuckers oh oh that's that's tough it's like picking your favorite child yeah narrow it down to one uh, <laughs> that's but, easy uh, for me. as long as i don't see it you can pick it's just as long as i don't find out <laughs> <laughs> no, it was uh it was really there were so many great people. Ethan Murray was great. Um Tobias Myers was terrific. Um, you know, Tobias was, I guess, one of the he was the elder statesman of the Shuckers. He's like 25, which just goes to it was the youngest team in double A, one of the youngest oh. teams. Um, it was the youngest team in the Southern League, the youngest batting team in double A. Um, you know, it was a really, really young team, which was cool for me as a guy who's you know young in his career to be around that that type of guy um but ethan murray was great noah campbell was terrific west was terrific tobias myers was great um a lot of guys out in the bullpen tj shook was terrific he's got some really fun stories and he's the the brewers minor league mlbpa play rep which was a new thing this year so it was really cool to be able to talk about that with him um you know not not the nitty-gritty stuff but uh, you know obviously that's that's locked down but you know kind of talking with him about what that involves and you know what's it like being a player rep on the minor league side because that's a brand new thing to the minor league baseball world um you know nick kale was great to have around west was great around um you know there was hard pick to find guys that weren't good to have around um on the shuckers and that extends to the coaching staff as well you know whether chucky caulfield mike girl will Shearholz, um you know our our coaching staff as well nick stanley uh, was on the staff as well our, our strength staff um you know it was just so many great people and i think that was one of the really cool things about being in the brewers organization my first time in affiliate ball so to be around all those great people um who are like oh there's the radio guy Blah. um you know to be able to to talk with them and, and be able to see them was was really really fun i think that was one of the coolest parts about this year um was being able to to be around all those people welcoming with open arms as a 22 year old in double a um who had graduated college in january and they're like yeah no come out um that that was really really cool and that and that's not something that happens everywhere which uh, which is really really special that's awesome nice. nicely done so here's a good one and I, i'm very excited for this answer uh who is a player you're excited to get to see get to the double a level oh brock wilkin was here, here to end the year brock wilkin was so much fun um Brock Wilkin, I mean, that first home run, Grand Slam, is his first hit in double A. Um, that was <laughs> yeah. that was terrific, especially the way it happened. You know, the Shuckers needed to win. It was like it was the final series of the year against Montgomery. We needed to win four. They needed to win three to get to the playoffs. And game one of the series, maybe it was game two. No, it was game one of the series. Isaac Collins hits a first inning leadoff home run. And then in the second inning, we score six. Grand slam from Brock Wilkin. Place goes nuts. Um, and Brock's a guy who three months ago was playing the College World Series. Yeah. Um, and six months ago, playing against my alma mater and Elon, you know, in North Carolina in a midweek game, um, which just showed you the crazy world um, 
of college baseball. I'm also really excited to see Eric Brown Jr. next year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he's a guy that's really, really fun. Lots of speed. Um, you know, was top five in the Midwest League in stolen bases last year, and he missed, what, like a month, month and a half with an injury. Um, and I think a couple, you know, Bradley Blaylock's another guy who I'm, I'm mm-hmm. excited to see at the AA level. Um, there are a couple of guys that they've signed in free agency and stuff that'll be exciting. Like Sam Carlson had some really interesting numbers last year. Um, and then Russell Smith, if he's back in double A, he ended the year really, really good. Um, he had like a one nine or one, two ERA over the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, that'll be a fun thing to see if he kind of builds off that going into next year. Um, there's a number of guys who will just be a lot of fun to see next year. Um, and reach that double I level, um, especially, you know, what, what we saw this year with, with the Timber Rattlers and Appleton or, you know, with the Mudcats in Carolina, kind of the guys that, that were making that jump um, and to see kind of how they make that jump to the double I level because that's the biggest one in minor league baseball. I mean, there is a considerable talent jump. Um, that's something that our manager, Mike Guerrero, talked about all last year. The jump from high to double is ridiculous, especially now with, with the way minor league baseball has been reorganized. Mm-hmm. Um, that talent in double A is really, really good. Um, and especially, you know, in our league, um, you know, the Angels will usually have their top prospects in Rocket City because their AAA team is in Salt Lake and it's a little harder to develop at that altitude. Um, so some of those West Coast teams that have affiliates in the Southern League, you'll see their pitchers be a little bit older, a little bit more mature at the double A level um, because it's just tough to, to pitch in that altitude, especially if you're going to go back to Anaheim. Um hmm. So, you know, a couple different things with, with kind of the level of the league and just the teams in the league, especially in the Southern League, is really, really big, which I think makes that jump so exciting. You know, you look at, at our division, um, it's the Brewers, the Rays, who are always really good, the Braves, who, I mean, look at the Braves. They developed a lot of talent yeah. for Mississippi. Um, and then you have Pensacola with the Marlins, who, again, have a really, really good stock of prospects. And that's just the division. Um, you know, you look at the North Division, you have the Cubs, always really good, Reds always really good on the prospect side of things. Um, and then you have the, the White Sox and the Angels as well. So, like, the talent in the Southern League is really, really good. Um, and, and that creates such a fun jump for guys to be able to challenge themselves against, I mean, the junior Camineros of the world um, with the race side. Or, you know, you even look to the um, the, the Marlins side and who's come through the Marlins system the last couple of years. You know, they've all been playing against the Brewers prospects. So it really is like a prospect-on-prospect battle. Um, especially the way the schedule's out. We play the three other teams in our division 30 times. So it's, oh, you're, you're seeing them a lot. So you're game 27 um, and you're facing the Embrace for the, the 27th time. And you're going to start her pitching against for the fifth time this year. Um, you know, it really, it really does come down to, to sort of that, that jump on, on the, on the side of talent. So I'm wondering, there's one guy that I don't know if he's going to get to double A this year, but it's a guy that Jake and I are both super excited about, hoping he gets to the double A level this year. But do you have any impressions on Cooper Pratt? Oh, so Cooper Pratt. So he's a guy that, again, I, I'd be, you know, I think they would he would go to, to A ball to start the year and, and right. kind of see what that does. But he's a guy who, like Luis Laura last year, who could very much yeah. end up in double A to start, maybe not to start this year, but at some point this year. Um, you know, the Brewers do a really good job developing young talent. And, and whether it's high school guys or international signees, um, I think that's one of the really, really big things. And, and Cooper Pratt, from what I've read, I haven't done a super, super deep dive on him. Um, from what I've read, you know, he's a guy who's really, really talented. Um, 
and you know to to do what he did in the Arizona Complex League last year because he was he was the one that had like a high OBP led them to the title. Um, you know, being able to do that as a kid straight out of high school is really really big. Yeah. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see where he ends up next year, but I'm sure he starts out, um, in Carolina. If he, they really like him, we'll start out in Wisconsin, um, yeah. and we'll see from there. But he's definitely a guy that if all goes well, um, he could end up in Biloxi by, by August or, or September, like we saw from a couple of guys this year. Um, you know, Ryan Brady was one of them. Um, Shane Smith was another one who was with us for the last week of the year and he started the year in Carolina. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. Cause it's like the, when the Brewers drafted him, it's like, okay, so Five years from now, everybody in the NL Central is just going to have like six foot four taller shortstops. And they hit home runs. <laughs> hey, that's that's never a bad thing. And I think one of the, the good things about um, the, the minor league side with having a lot of shortstops is they are very much able to play a number of different positions because they're so athletic. And especially the high school level, usually you put your best player at shortstop. That's why Jackson, I mean, that's Jack True was a shortstop coming up. Um, yep. And that athleticism can play to multiple positions. Um, so, you know, whether he slots out of shortstop or the outfield, um, you know, that, that, that gives the Brewers a number of options. Um, and that athleticism, you know, you see how Major League Baseball is trending today. And, you know, Pratt's athleticism, uh, that yeah. plays in a big way at the big league level. Um, so the more guys you have like that in the system, the, the better your system usually is. Yeah. All right. For sure. I'm sure we could probably spend – you know, hours talking to you and maybe we'll do so in the near future, but we'll definitely be in touch. We appreciate you hopping on with us, talk about some more Brewers prospects. And, and yeah, like I said, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me on guys. And we're one day closer to pitchers and catchers reporting and one day closer to April 5th when the Shuckers open at home. So it's, uh, it's, it's exciting for sure. Awesome. Have a good night. Thanks again. Same with you guys. Have a good one. Take care, man. Uh, I do really feel like we could like just sit here for like hours and just be like, yeah, let's talk about baseball. Let's talk about prospects that we're really excited to watch play for the Brewers in a couple of years. Bro, he was just throwing out names and numbers, and I was like, yeah, this guy's smart. He knows his shit, <laughs> dude, for sure. Yeah, and I definitely think we should take him up on his offer because that would be super awesome. Yeah, and maybe sick. something to watch out for for us, for those of you that are watching right now. All righty, so we're going to switch from baseball to football, and we're going to bring Mike in. Mike, hey, what's up, fellas? Sounds like Alrighty. the future of the Brewers franchise is uh, very bright. So, yes. Yeah. we got a lot of guys in a lot of different spots, man. Yeah. I love hearing I that. I can't wait. <laughs> All righty, so we're going to start with football for the Badgers. So we got Mike back with us now. This is going to be brief. Um, Basically, what it boils down to is the fact that the way college football is going, the the teams are going to be short on players. So you look at the Badgers offense, I think it's six starters that aren't playing. um, And it's guys getting ready for the draft or guys transferring. Now, the two things that this this really needs to be discussed before we jump into a couple things we're going to talk about. First, guys preparing for the draft, it's you're looking at one game versus the rest of your career. Yep. You know, there are some guys like a guy like Hayden Rucci who is declared for the draft but is going to play in the bowl game. He's not somebody who is necessarily a lock to be drafted. That's fair. So he's looking to go and put some more tape out there to maybe get some consideration. I could also see maybe if Hayden Rucci gets invited to the senior bowl, I could see him being a guy that would attend something like that. Guys that are trying to raise their draft stock. 
Now you get guys like Braylon Allen for the Badgers or Jaden Daniels for LSU who aren't playing in this bowl game to prepare for the NFL draft. Those guys, those guys are getting drafted. Jaden Daniels is going to be probably a top five, definitely a top 10 pick. So that's that part of it. Then looking at the transfer portal side of it, I get why people are upset that the bowl games happen when they do, given the fact that the transfer portal happens when it does. So like, I understand people's frustration of like, why don't they have the transfer portal take place after the bowl games? It boils down to this. They are student athletes, not athlete students. Yep. It's the academic year. That's what. So they need to be transferred to their new school before the bowl game season so that they are ready to start their new semester of school. That's, yep. that's really what's more important is, is to have the student before the athlete. They are student athletes. They are not athlete students. So I, again, I understand the frustration on that part. I really do. I get it that I wish these guys could transfer after the bowl game, but it's, it's something where, where the schooling comes first and that's the way it is. And that's the way it's going to continue to be. Yep. It's the world we live in now. Money talks, baby. And people are going to be moving around and we're giving these kids more freedom, which is a good thing. Absolutely. Right. It's a good thing for, for sports in general. It's a good thing for college football, which is the second highest revenue sport in this country, right behind the NFL. So if you think that any sport in America is more important than football, you're, you're fooling yourself. It's not football is King. It's not going anywhere. Baseball's not coming up. I mean, listen, I enjoy all the sports. Hockey's not going to come up. Basketball's not going to come up and take it. Basketball gets its shine in March for about three weeks where basketball is the King. After that, I mean, NBA playoffs, people, NBA is kind of hit and miss with everybody, but you know what everybody signs up for? Football. People sign up for football. Yeah. Promise that. <laughs> yeah, and right. especially I would say really quick on at this point in time of the year with like bowl season, like there's like a lot of people take it as okay, there's two relevant games now, right? It's the college football playoff. I, which is why I'm at first off, I'm a huge component of the college football playoff expanding to 12 teams starting next year. I am absolutely pumped about that. Uh, but no, at the end of the day, this is just an opportunity for the young guys uh, that we haven't seen um, in games necessarily all, all year. Um, we'll probably mention a few names here shortly, but uh, you know, for any, any diehard fans like ourselves, I think it's a great opportunity to see, uh, you know, some of the guys that, you know, coach Vic and even from the 2023 class, potentially that we might be able to, uh, you know, see on the field on Monday. I'm looking forward to that. I agree. For sure. So we're going to discuss some matchups that we're watching, our keys to victory, and score predictions. Again, with this, it doesn't pay for us to bring up stats from the year because so many players who impacted those statistics are gone, so it really doesn't pay. Like, it doesn't pay to talk about Badgers receiving statistics when Kimmeray DK and Skylar Bell are gone. Like, it doesn't pay to talk about running back statistics with Braylon Allen gone. It, it, and it doesn't pay to bring up, say, LSU's passing statistics with their starting quarterback gone. Like, it just doesn't – it doesn't really pay to bring up those stats when the guys who made them aren't in this game. So, we're going to do a matchup, a key, and score predictions. So, that said, Mike, what is your matchup that you are watching? I just came down to, like, okay, based off of what you said, who is going to play in the game, right? Uh, so – I know they got LSU as a backup quarterback, but I think you still got to get your guy, your best guys that are available. You got to get them the ball somehow. 
So I, I still got a star quarterback, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not like a, you know a, a true freshman that's going right. to be thrown out there yeah. to play. Um, so I got Malik Neighbors versus Rico Hallman, man. Uh, I think that's I think that's by far like the number one matchup to, to watch. I just looking at who's playing again mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Um, you know, this is could be a preview of two NFL guys again, you know, after next season. So right. that first one ju- jumped out to me, I think. And, you know, with the fact that LSU does have two 1000 yard receivers, I'm sorry. I didn't mean, I don't mean to bring stats in like this, but, uh, the, my well, number both guys second, are playing, so I get it. Yeah, both are playing. So right. number two was, you know, Nizier Forkreen versus Brian Thomas Jr. or potentially Alex Smith. As far as the depth chart, chart as far as the depth chart is concerned, Forkreen Forkreen jumped him. So um, I'm looking forward to that matchup too, because at the end of the day, I think LSU is going to get it to their best ball players, um, whether that's passing or receiving. In this case, they got two studs out there receiver. Yeah, and I and Malik Neighbors and Rico is absolutely the one that I was thinking of. I didn't go with it because it was a low hanging fruit, and I was sure one of you guys. Yeah, were gonna bring it I up. know. And and, and it, that's totally fine. That's why I didn't pick it. I knew somebody would. So I mean, Malik Neighbors is another guy who could be a top ten, maybe top five pick, depending on who's there. It's probably going to be a top ten, but just another absolute yeah. talent. I think he's going to be top ten. That's fair. Um, you want me to go? Yeah, go for it. So, a little stat for you. In 11 of 12 games for LSU, they've hit the over. Okay, so oh. that means that they're scoring a lot and their Four defense points. is terrible. In 8 of the 12 games, the Badgers have been under. Hmm. So, the defense has been okay. I mean, we play in a pretty putrid division, let's be honest. Big Ten West is pretty trash. Um, but our offense was, you know, a little underwhelming at times, injured here and there, you yeah. know. There's just stuff that was going on, you know, that new you know, system. We contextually went through everything, right? Yep. But you know, when I was thinking about that, and I was like, man, that offense is just special. <laughs> I went with the wide receivers as well. I'm not gonna lie to you. And when I was looking at Brian Thomas Jr., and you don't really hear a lot about him because Malik Neighbors is just putting up disgusting numbers, and he was uh, you know, you know, it was a it was a two horse race, you know, for the Balintikoff award between him and Marvin Harrison Jr., right? Uh, so neighbors was going nuts. Uh, 86 catches, 1546 yards, and 14 touchdowns. And then you have Brian Thomas Jr. This guy's 6'4, 205. So he's just a yeah, big jump ball guy. Big dude. Six foot or 60 catches, 1079 yards, and he has 15 touchdowns. I mean, um, both these guys are just big time playmakers. So I have those guys versus Ricardo Hallman and Four Queen as well. I think that's going to be the really, really what's going to tell a lot in this game. And like we, we talked about, it is a four-star quarterback that's going to be going into this game. This guy was getting recruited by the Georgias of the world. So, uh, and LSU, obviously, they're no, they're no slouch. But LSU and Georgia, when you get recruited by those guys, you're a pretty big-time prospect. I mean, Michigan State threw their name in there. This guy was getting recruited by everybody. So, it's not like they're – I mean, I know they're missing the Heisman Trophy winner. You know, a guy who had 1,000 rush yards and obviously a lot of passing yards and touchdowns. But uh, it's not like they're putting a slouch in there. They, they have a good guy going in there. So, this matchup's going to be big time. That's going to tell a lot what's going to happen. So I went with the receivers on the other side of the ball. Uh, I'm watching them. Like I'm, I find myself intrigued and interested in what the Badgers are going to show a wide receiver. So there's no Kimmery DK and no Skylar Bell, but obviously we still have Will Pauling. 
Bryson mm-hmm. Green, it sounds like, is going to play. He was dealing with an ankle injury towards the end of the season, but it sounds like he's going to play. Uh, Tretch Kekahuna is available. Mm-hmm. He can play this game and still be able to redshirt. So he's a, And I love that the NCAA allowed that. Uh, he's allowed to play in the bowl game and not have to give up his red shirt. And then uh, C.J. Williams, Vinny Anthony, and Quincy Burroughs. Those are guys that I'm really looking forward to watching. So I'm just looking to see what the what the next man up at the wide receiver position can do for the Badgers. I like it. Mm-hmm. All right, Mike, what's your key to the game? Can we get a pass? I, I don't mean to downplay LSU's backup quarterback, but can we get a pass rush uh, on him uh, before he gets the ball to their playmakers, right? I know we did lose a lot. I mean, we lost Rodas Johnson. We lost Jordan Turner. I'm definitely missing one more name, but uh, no, we're, we just need the next man to step up and generate some sort of pass rush on these guys. Obviously, they're going to try and get the ball in their hands. If we can just cause a little bit of disruption to keep us in the game for that long, for, for a while, um, you know, I think we could potentially be right in this. Uh, but I honestly, that was my number one, you know, key, I think, for this one. And I also, offensively, I think this is also going to be another game when Terry Mordecai is going to need to make some plays on his legs. Kind of similar to, like, Minnesota when he had, a like, two or three bit big runs in that, that last week. Um, this is his last game. He's definitely going to pull out, pull out all the stops to, you know, make his mark and hopefully get noticed by some sort of by an NFL team next year. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think he's going to have to make play a lot of play or a good chunk of plays on his legs too to uh, keep us in this. Send Vinny Anthony down the field and just let him chuck it. Mm-hmm. I'm all for it, man. Yeah. Let's see it. <laughs> all right, Jake, what's your key to victory? I finish in the red zone. Uh, we need touchdowns, not field goals. So when you look at these stats, LSU is 119th. That's their rank in points per drive allowed, and they are 122nd in red zone touchdown percentage allowed. Score touchdowns, boys. Thanks. I like that. So mine is the next man up. So we we talked about it to open up this segment about this. The reality of college football between the draft and the portal, several players get a one-game audition before spring practices to move up the depth chart. Yeah. So I just brought up all those wide receivers, and I actually used the the phrase next man up. I didn't mean to spoiler alert that. But, you know, all the wide receivers looking at offensive linemen, looking at linebackers. A guy like Christian Allegro could make a huge impact and potentially play his way into a starting spot next fall, Mm -hmm. which he could be in line for already anyways. But, you know, a big show in the bowl game could just further cement that. Um, It sounds like the safeties are pretty much going to be the same next year. Uh, Jason Matry is going to the draft, but other than that, the secondary is kind of still, you know, mostly the same, but uh, defensive line is another one. It looks like Kurt Neal freshman is going to get a chance to maybe even start this game. Yeah. And, or play a lot. Uh, So I'm really interested in to see the next man up and who can, who can kind of move themselves up the depth chart before spring practices and all the transfer guys get here. All right, Mike. First of two score predictions. Score prediction from the head. I know it's hard, but just let's just throw some numbers out there. See what we can do. God. Okay. So from the head, I, I'm going to have to go Ohio State. I, I uh, related on this. I, I did pick LSU to win. Sorry, that's just my how my brain works. Uh, I got I got 27-17 LSU. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, we might we still might be finding ways to not we we're not going to find ways to score it's been it's been an achilles heel for for us all year just with not like the consistency of the offense whether that's from 
you know, a penalties pr- perspective or missed catches. I think that's going to trickle in a little bit into this game too. However, I'm still, I do think a couple young guys are going to make big catches for us throughout the game. Random names like a Tretch. Vinny Anthony will probably get a few more, you know, looks. He is getting going to get a few more looks. Um, but I'm looking forward to seeing that. I still think we're going to have the those issues, though, at the end of the day, because I, I don't think a, um, a couple weeks of bowl prep might, is going to figure out those issues overnight. So I got 27-17 from the head, LSU. So I got it a little bit closer. I do also have LSU winning, but I have 24-20 LSU. All right, well, make that three for three. I also have LSU from the head, but mine's high scoring. I think this game's going to be high scoring. I think this offense is going to shock some people. Like LSU defense is absolutely putrid. Um, so I think both things can be true. Uh, I have LSU 36, Wisconsin 30. All right, I'm here for it. That'd be Man, fun, actually. It would suck to if lose. We scored but... 30, if we scored 30 in a game, I would, yeah, that, that's a good sign. I would I would take that all day because – we, I think we averaged 20, what was it, 22.4 points yep. per game this year? Yeah. Like so if we got 30, I would be ecstatic. <laughs> yeah. And like Jake, like you yeah. said, it, you know, you wouldn't want to lose, but it would be fun. Yeah. All right, Mike, what about from the heart? So it's going to be 27 21 Wisconsin in overtime. Ooh. Big win. Whoa. In, in overtime specifically. I'm going to write that down. OT. Exclamation points. I got you. All right. He started saying 27, and then I'm like, uh-oh, we're going to have the same one? But I kept the same margin of victory, but flipped it over to Wisconsin. I have 27-23, Wisconsin. Mm. Okay. Well, I have a scoring 30 again, and this time in a W, 30-28, to 28, Wisconsin. That would be fun, too. Are we like be... a game-winning kick, maybe, by Vaco Cervecos to Ooh. win? Or are we or, thinking... or LSU misses a game-winning kick? I mean, there's lots of options, man. Oh, man. man. That just thinks of, like, going against, like, an SEC, right? Like, when Barry was the coach for that game against Auburn, and we went yeah. against him in overtime, and the Auburn kicker missed it. I think it was Carlson, actually. I think it was Carlson, the Dan Carlson who missed oh, that. Daniel Carlson? Yeah, Daniel Carlson. That could be. That, that could yeah. Be. I think he was the kicker that missed that, but – uh. No, I thought about that game too when I did this prediction. I'm like, you know what? We're gonna win an OT again. So yeah, that's where that came from. I'm here for it. Yeah. All righty. Anything else you guys want to say on the bowl game? Like, you know, again, it's kind of kind of like a crapshoot based on the fact that a lot of guys aren't in it. But anything else you guys want to say on the bowl game? I think it'll just be exciting to see, you know, like you said, some of these yeah. these guys put in high pressure situations that they haven't been in before, and mm-hmm. uh, that's that could be on both sides too. You know, quarterback for LSU, he's getting some, you know, going to start the game, get a lot of big time playing time yeah. versus uh, you know a Wisconsin Badger team who's a Big Ten football team. Like I talked crap about the Big Ten West, but we're still a Big Ten football team, right? Yeah, it's still a Big Ten, yeah. So, and we're still coached by Luke Fickle, who's one of the best coaches in the country. So. This is going to be interesting on both ends, man. That's why it's kind of why I predicted high scoring because I think some miscommunications on defense on both sides, you know, could could lead to some stuff. Maybe some bad tackling, you know, from lack of experience on both sides. I think all of that could happen. Yeah, and it's, a, like I said, it's a sixty-minute audition. Yeah, Jake Renfro is making his debut. I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing how he yeah. how he does. Um, you know, we've obviously heard, I don't want to call it all hype necessarily, but I mean, we've heard his name for the last year, literally a year. It's just about January, um, you know, since he committed. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do. A true center who's been, you know, in the shotgun, 
you know, spread formation a bunch. Um, just looking to see how that works and how he can propel into, you know, next year because he's the one guy with a lot of experience from that position that we're going to definitely need help with. And, um, you know, before we get true centers into the program, I guess. So that's uh, one guy I'm going to have uh, my eyes on for sure. For sure. All righty. Let's switch over to basketball. And we're going to go, the Badgers only had one basketball game again last week. They only have one game next week too, but we'll get to that after we discuss this one. So Badgers win over Chicago State. Um, it feels like Connor Asijan is getting there slowly, mm-hmm. slowly but surely. Uh, hopefully we can get some more of that as we enter Big Ten play. And then I also want to call out that it does sound like the belief is that Chucky Hepburn avoided a serious injury. So before yeah. we get into our takeaways, I did just want to mention those two things. Mm-hmm. No, that All was right. where I'm glad you brought that up yeah. because yeah, with a groin injury, it's like, oh boy, like that, yeah. that can, that can mess with you for a bit. So no, with, hopefully he's back for uh, the Iowa game. Cause we're yeah. sure as hell going to need him. Yeah, for sure. All righty. So Mike, uh, talk about AJ store and Max Klesman. Yeah. So AJ store career high um, against Chicago state, he had 29 points. Two rebounds, one assist, one steal. Uh, it's his fifth time in his career he's gotten uh, 20 points or more, so um, that was pretty nice. Um, you know what What stood out, what stood out to me besides he was three of five from three as well. Chicago State, uh, they rotated their defenses a, co- a couple times too, and when they did do that, when they did go to a zone, A.J. Storr was the one guy that could you know find those little holes and get to the bucket. I feel like that. I mean, you've talked about how much of a big difference maker he is in comparison to last year. I mm. feel like with the team that we had last year, we didn't necessarily have that guy like his size forward guard position that couldn't necessarily get to the bucket like that. So I think this game, you know, what stood out was that he could get to the bucket, you know, whether Chicago State was rotating in their defensive formations, man to man or to zone. Um, he found ways to get get to the bucket, get to the free throw line as well, four or six. Um, but no, that that's a guy that we're gonna need, you know, this year in Big Ten play. And I think could be the, you know, damn well the difference maker from, you know, winning conference or you know being seventh or eighth in the Big Ten like we were last year. So, yeah. um, you know, props to him. He had a hell of a night. Yeah, good call. Yeah, and then the last call out. I wanted to applaud a guy. You know, we haven't really called him out too much since the Marquette game. Uh, it was Max Klesman, uh defensively spe- uh, specifically. And, you know, Chicago, we mentioned last week where Chicago State, like, we can't, we got to take this game seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, they just came off a big win against Northwestern. So um, his defense against Wesley Cardet specifically. Now, if any fans out here don't know, he dropped 30 points against Northwestern, um, you know, and they ended up beating them, right? This guy was also a former four-star recruit. He's been, you know, you know, coaches know about him, you know. So um, I just want to applaud Klesman. He held the guy for four of 22 from shooting <laughs> 10 and 10 points total. So uh, for Klesman, he, uh, for being a guy, I would say low man on the radar so far this year, not too bad, not, not, not the greatest at times either, but he's even keel. I just wanted to make this call out for him too on a defensive end, because um, even going back to last year too, he was the guy that was guarding the other team's guy, like the top dog. So, uh, you know, good, good for him. All right, Jake, talk about perimeter defense and the attacking offense. Yeah, so I'm just going to play off you, Mikey, on the perimeter defense. I was watching the uh, postgame presser, 
and they actually asked Klesman, you know, what is it like, you know, having to guard all of the t- other team's best players? And he was just like, well, you know, I played against Cardet, you know, when I was, you know, with Wolford and stuff like that. So he said he kind of had a little scouting report on him, and he said that, you know, the coaching staff here does a great job getting you prepared for that. And uh, Stephen Crowell chimed in and talked about how, how much of a difference maker it is to have a guy like Klesman who's not afraid of any matchup, right? And when I was looking at perimeter defense, I was, I was looking at Cardet, and I was also looking at uh, Jay uh, Sean Corbett, right? And he was the other guy taking on, taking double-digit shots for them. So he went 3 of 14. So if you combined uh, Cardet and Corbett, uh, they were seven of thirty-six. Oh, that is nineteen percent, and they were one for nine from three, which is eleven percent. So I mean, they were just gross. Yeah, they were they were getting clamped on a point blank period, um, and you know oh. that that's a great thing for the Badgers. Obviously, uh, you're going historically Wisconsin Badger basketball, going back to Bull Ryan days, you know, and uh, Bennett days, but um, you're just we just clamp up on defense and I love it, man. Like there's nothing more satisfying to me than pissing somebody off when they're trying to do something. And it's just like, ha, ha, you're so mad right now, dude. Like that is just, that's a what great deal. That's why I would like, if I was a player, I would love playing on the road. Cause I would like to be a dickhead to all the thousands of people that are like in the stadium. Like, Oh, I'm so excited about the game. Like imagine like a 10 year old, like wearing a Michigan state shirt. Like, yeah, I'm so excited. We're going to beat the Badgers. And then you just whooped our ass. You threw a 10 year old's day. Oh, Bye-bye. Oh, that would be the best feeling in the world for me. So back to the, the topic here. I'm going to go to attacking offense. And another thing they talked about in the post-game presser, it was actually Stephen Crowell that talked about it, was the game plan was to get the ball inside and score and get the ball inside and score and get the ball inside and score. And they actually mentioned how Chicago State was switching up into a zone. And uh, the uh, yeah. Crowell talked about how he, he actually had a couple big-time buckets late in this game that kind of took him out of the zone. Because he got some one-on-ones in the middle of the paint. Uh, a really nice drop-down pass from Chucky as well that got him a big-time dunk. Was that mm, Chucky? Yes. Was Chucky yep. that passed that? I think it was Chucky that passed that. And he looked like a, a actual big man on the dunk. So that was kind of nice to see. Um, but, yeah, I just, I just loved our attacking mindset to get down to the teeth of the defense. We were dictating and we were being the aggressors on offense and defense, and that's the thing that I took away from it. Yeah, I like that. Uh, on your subject of perimeter defense, Chicago State didn't make their first field goal until the 10:08 mark. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, that's that's whoo, boy. You're and they about made, ten minutes of no field goals. They made three three pointers, and they had one of the filthiest, like cleanest three point shot makes I've ever seen from like a a mid major. And I'm just like, 
You only made two more of those the rest of the game. Like, <laughs> that's ridiculous. <clears throat> the the really funny thing was with six minutes and 26 seconds left in the first half, Chicago State and A.J. Store were tied at 17 points. Uh, <laughs> it's not great for them. No. Uh, the interesting thing with A.J. Store that I wanted to throw in there was uh, it happened once was when A.J. Store was just getting buckets, they ran a pick and roll with A.J. Store and Stephen Crowell. Yeah. And Stephen Crowell was able to get a layup out of it. It's so good. that's something, it's not in my goals for the next game to watch, but that's something I would be very interested to see more of. We were calling for it a couple call. weeks ago, man. And it was with, with Chucky Hepburn. We were we were enjoying it. But it's like yeah. uh, Tyler Wall and John Blackwell. We talked about that two-man game. So if if AJ Store and Stephen Crowell can get a two man game going, that's that's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. All right, so my two things: first, ball movement. There was a lot of fake one and make one. That's something that Jake and I have been taught since we were freshmen in high school: was fake a pass and make a pass. Yeah, decisive movement. Guys, not just you know dribbling sideways. Guys were going towards the basket. Um, the Badgers did a really good job of finding cutters. I love the Badgers' off-ball movement. It's getting better. Uh, catching closer to the three-point line is something that I've been calling out for weeks. It, you know, Badgers catching the ball four feet away from the three-point line, like nobody's doing anything with that. You need to catch the ball on or a step away from the three-point line and look like you're a threat ready to score. Mm-hmm. So they did that better. And then moving the ball quicker with passes and drives. So just in general, moving the ball quicker, that is something that benefits the Badgers greatly. Because the Badgers are used to running a slow-paced offense that is built on swinging the ball. They, they run a swing offense. They swing the ball. They pass it. 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 They post-enter. And they look to get a one-on-one matchup in the post with, with a, a mismatch. Or they pass the ball back out, swing it all the way around, and then do the same thing on the other side. So the Badgers have an offense that is built to, to sustain a, a, a possession. Now, if they're able to do that with quicker movements and then speed up the other team, in my mind, that's going to fatigue the defense. And the more passes that you make in a quicker succession, the better chances you have to catch somebody losing track of their man, and you get layups and dunks. So I am 1,000% in on the Badgers moving the ball quicker. And then my second thing is their assist to turnovers. Now... (laughs) Wisconsin was 14 to 7, so that's 2 to 1. I'll take that. Mm-hmm. Chicago State had three assists and seven turnovers. Yeah. Three assists in a game is wild. Yeah. That's that's just ridiculous. I'm gonna say this too. Chicago State is really good at jumping passing lanes. They have a lot of long athletes. So for the Badgers, yeah. only have seven turnovers is actually impressive. That's fair. Yeah. Um and then just again to go back to my what I was saying about ball movement, the Badgers did a good job of cutting to the basket, and the guys did a good job of finding those cutters. So I mentioned Chicago State had three assists. The Badgers had three starters that had three assists each. Chucky right. Heppard had three assists, Max Klesman had three assists, and Stephen Crowell had three assists. Uh, Chicago State had three as a team. Yeah, that's that's wild. <laughs> so, Jake, to your point. Uh, the seven turnovers a lot, uh, ended up with seven points off turnovers. 
Uh, 11 second chance points is a little high, but it is what it is. And the Badgers missed six free throws. That's 24 fundamental failure points. That's not bad at all. My goal was to be under 23. So 24 is close. Um, but I think the Badgers can still be even better. I agree. Yeah. So that said, the Badgers only have one game between now and next Wednesday. They play Iowa on Tuesday. So, Mike, what are your two goals for the Badgers against Iowa? For, so, number one, and this was crazy. I got my first one. I got keep attacking the bucket, keep attacking mm. to get to the free throw line. And I say ah, that. Because, good one. Well, and I say that because going into, I think we still are at the top. The Badgers are number one in free throw percentage so far this year in the Big Ooh. Ten. Number one. I okay. didn't believe it. I had to double check. I'll no, I triple, check it. I'll find it. I triple checked that. Yeah, we are number one in percentage specifically, not attempts. Uh, per, uh, percentage. I mean, excuse me, um, uh, percentage-wise. But anyway, you, you said it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was looking at two different things, but um, yeah. So I would say keep attacking the buck. And AJ Store, clearly one of our best free throw shooters. Um, so I would anticipate. I would love for him to keep doing what he did this last game against Chicago State. Specifically, more so getting to the bucket because, um, again, as I pointed out, we don't necessarily have too many guys that can do that. So if he can do that consistently, that's going to not only you know open up for a big man, but it could also open up for a potential three ball from somebody on our team. So it's just sticking. And that goes back to st- sticking to our identity from like old Badger teams. Like we make our free throws, we play defense, you know, and we, we just close out games. Last year, we couldn't do that because, you know, we were definitely not in the top half in terms of, uh, you know, free throws. So uh, that was number one. Uh, number two, I got, oh, limit the transition defense against Iowa specifically. Um, they score over 80, about 86.6 points per game. But they love to give up seven about 77.5. So um, they do love to run. So I would say if we can limit the transition, not have another game like Arizona uh, in regards to that. Uh, you know, we're going to be right in check. I do. I was okay, but I think we should definitely beat this team. Just looking at it on paper, um, you know, and it's at the Cole center. Hopefully get Fran a T hopefully get him ejected uh, and give us all a good laugh at the end of the day. So we can you talk can about him this in next Iowa. Like, I don't even want to yeah. see that dude. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, just so. like, he's not good for the vibes. No, he's not. He's good for a few laughs from us. That That's for sure. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I hope I hope Max Klesman takes a charge right in front of him. Oh, he just hits him a little bit. Oh, yeah. oh so, man. We got it. One um, more McCaffrey we play yet. So I think he might be done after this year. But I don't know if there's another one coming up through the ranks either. But I think Pat McCaffrey's a senior this year for them. But uh, Dude, his right, dad's yeah. like 105 years old. You better not have any more kids. The hell? Yeah. So we'll, sure he'll have we'll grandkids ready to go. Knock on wood, <laughs> but yeah. Um, I put the stats up there while you were talking, Mike. You are correct that Badgers do indeed have the number one free throw percentage in the Big Ten. Yeah. So that Not was that crazy. I didn't believe you, but because I know because I, I I figured I'd put them up there. I critique it. You know, you guys know I critique that a lot with this team. So I'm just looking at that. It's like, oh, okay. I see you. I see you. But uh, yeah, keep keep doing that. I mean, keep building off your identity what it what's has worked for you so far this year so yeah and that's 100 percent. so i'm gonna jump in because mine is free throw related my first one is so my first one is get 20 plus free throws 
So, Mike, the fact that you brought up the fact that they're number one in free throw percentage, that just drives this home even more. So looking at the Badgers' five games in December, 26, 26, 8, 14, and 28 free throws. The only game they lost was the fort, or was the game they took eight free throws. Yeah. And that was Arizona. Yeah. And against Michigan State, they only took 14 free throws, but they made all 14. It's pretty good. So for the Badgers, 20-plus free throws is my first goal. My second goal is to shoot 33% or higher on threes. Badgers have been very streaky at the three-point line, but yeah. they've had a lot of 30, 31, 32% three-point shooting games. So I'm just looking for the Badgers, just one out of three. Just make one out of three is what I'm looking for from the Badgers at the three-point right. line. So, Jake, what are your two goals for Iowa? So my first one is keep the intensity on defense because you know Iowa – you know, in football and basketball, they're pretty even with us in both, right? They play us tough. We play them tough. It's really become our biggest rival. I mean, I know that we talk about Minnesota and stuff like that, but I think that Iowa personally is our biggest rival. Um, uh, <laughs> so just keep the intensity on defense. And my second one is remain level-headed because you know Fran's going to be over there doing his his nuances. I'm very happy you brought it up. But that was actually my second one, full Tyler, before the show. But uh, remain level-headed. Uh, he's going to be doing all bull, whole bunch of bullshit that uh, a toddler does, but he's in a 60-some-year-old man's body, and it's just – it's uncalled for, and he is an idiot, and I don't care that I'm saying this. I would tell him to his face that he's an idiot. Um, but just remain level-headed if you're the Badgers. Don't get sucked into all that stuff, and let's just go beat those bastards because I don't like them one bit. It's He's like – He's like a clown show of a human being, but like he's literally the opposite of what I feel about Tom Izzo. Seriously, dude. Like, I have the ultimate respect for Izzo. Like, I'll never talk bad about Izzo. Like, I know that he whoops our ass every once in a while, but it's like, it's Tom Izzo, bro. Like, but then, like, yeah, that was actually great, dude. Fran McCaffrey, zero respect for that guy. Like, when he was staring up, what was that last year when he was like staring down the ref? Dude, for like 38 seconds. I was like, bro. Who the hell do you think you oh are? Oh my god, that's they shoved you in so Iowa for weird, a reason, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah you that imagine was that guy at like fucking UCLA or like a big time school. Like, oh my like, god, he'd get he's gonna get punched by somebody at some point. He's gonna, it's gotta happen. Well, wait till I play Michigan. Maybe Juwan Howard can do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, for real. Well, well played. Well played. He might not. He might not even be employed by the time they play each other. I don't know. Guy get punches coaches, strength conditioning coaches, still there. I don't know why. Well, he hasn't been fired. I don't know. This ain't Michigan hate week. This is is Iowa. So I'll I'll stay. Every week is Michigan hate week, bro. I'm on board with that. Yeah. Yeah. Tyler, I'm going to call one more quick stat since we talked about free throws. So we're averaging 19.8 free throw attempts on the year, I believe, so far. Last year, 14.3. So that's a five free throw bump. So just threw that out there real quick. I forgot to mention that, but uh, it was definitely relevant, especially with this team. I did not know that when I said get 20 plus. So I'm just going to go ahead and pat myself on the back for being like dead on. Yep. Yep. 19.8 I saw right before we got on. So yeah, that's a good, very good start. Um, All right. That's the stuff I like. All right. Well, Mike, we'll have you back next week. We'll talk about the bowl game and we'll talk about Iowa. And we will see you next week. Thanks for hopping on again. Sounds good, fellas. Later. Happy New Year, buddy. Happy New Year. 
So one of these days we'll we'll end up with more than just uh one, one or two games to talk about. Yeah. Right. I mean this week at least we had a football game to to mention at least at the same time. True. But all right. So we're gonna stick with basketball. We're gonna switch over to the Bucks. Jake, give me your underrated performer and your power pair for the Milwaukee Bucks. All right, I'll start with the power pair because you know who the first one is. It's my week to have the man, the myth, the legend, Giannis at a Kumbo. So I go with Giannis this week. He averaged 32.3, 10 rebounds, 6.3 assists. He shot 53% from the field. He made one of five three-pointers. He didn't shoot that many threes. Um, but he shot 72% from the free throw line. Mm. That's great. I'll take that. Um, he All had a two steals, five blocks, and he was a plus seven for the week. So just a normal Giannis week. Yep. Honestly. <laughs> Ho-hum. <laughs> Which sounds like disrespectful in a way, but it's like, when you're when you're at that level of greatness, he expects that from himself as well. So True. that's a that's a good thing. And it just uh, makes it so that we can highlight the weeks where he drops 50, 60, and right. then 40, 15, and 10. You know, it just highlights those just more. Right, exactly. Um, so then my next one I picked Bobby Portis. Mm-hmm. Um he averaged 13 points, nine rebounds. Uh he he added two assists. Um he shot 51% from the field, 30% from the three-point line. Uh, he needs to get the three-point numbers up there again. He was, yeah. he was on fire for a little bit. Uh, he had three steals, so an average of one steal per game. He averaged one block, and he finished minus four. He was pretty bad in the Magic game. They really hurt his plus-minus. But um, I just wanted to highlight this one thing. He had 28 total rebounds this week, and 12 of his 28 rebounds were offensive rebounds. So four mm-hmm. I'm really excited to talk about Bobby Portis today. Yeah, he, he was – it wasn't for a lack of effort that he wasn't making his three pointers or anything like yeah. that, but he was, he was hustling. He was Bobby Portis. And for my UP, I picked Beasley. Um, okay. And it, it kind of goes off of the Knicks games. In my opinion, the first Knicks game, he has 19 points. And then the Christmas day game, he has zero points. And you're looking at that and you're like, Beasley got 13 shot attempts in the first Knicks game. The offense was humming. He shot yeah. nine, three pointers. You go to the Christmas day game. He gets two shots total and one three-point shot. So the offense was kind of stagnant at points, right? Yeah. So I think that the ball movement could – the ball got a little sticky in my opinion, so that could be something that we look into. Yeah. Um, but he averaged nine, 4.6, and 1.6 assists. He shot 48% from the field and 50% from the three-point line. Uh, he's a shooter. And mm-hmm. he was a plus 24 for the week. And that's with him being minus 10 on Christmas Day, which is insane. Huh. Um, so – you know, all in all, pretty solid week for the Bucks, honestly. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about what seven game winning streak that ended on Christmas, right? And a, and so, a I mean, and a nine game win streak versus the Knicks. So true. Like, people were freaking out, and it's like, dude, it's not that serious. Okay. Yeah, settle down. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll get to that game individually and some of the quote unquote yeah. fallout from that, but. Yeah. I went with Damian Lillard. I got to have Dane this week. He averaged 25 points, 7.7 assists, and five rebounds. He was 39% from the field, which isn't great, but mm-hmm. a number of his percentages of shots that he takes are three-pointers. Yeah. And then the other part of it is if he faces uh, an officiating crew that isn't going to give him calls when he's driving to the basket, he could be in for a tough game. Yeah. And I think that's a little bit what happened on Christmas, but we'll get to that. But he was 39.3% from the three-point line, which is fantastic, so I will take that. Then, my second one, I went with Chris Middleton, who is slowly but surely returning to form. He is. There's, there's no denying that he is getting back to, like, 
almost all-star level Chris Middleton. If he can turn into the two-level scorer or two-way player Chris Middleton, mm. that's going to go really far away for this team. Absolutely. Yeah, if he can turn into the guy, I mean, I don't know that I expect him to get to this level, but of the guy who you could put on Kevin Durant for some stretches, then then we're cooking with gas. Yeah, especially with Jake Crowder coming back. Yeah. And you know they're making a move at the deadline. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. They're yeah, going to do uh, something. Yeah, and they're I guess they're going to be one of the most active teams on the buyout market. So, I mean, Doesn't seriously, keep, keep, keep a lookout for P.J. Tucker, honestly, is what it boils down to. Yep. So, Chris Middleton, he did play 31.5 minutes per game this week. So, he's not fully back yet, but he's like 80%, I'll say. Yep. Because I expect him when he's fully healthy, I expect him to be between like 33 to 36 minutes a game. Yeah. So, this week he averaged 19.3 points, 3.7 rebounds, 4.7 assists, and he got his turnovers down to two a game. If we're getting five assists and two turnovers, I'll take a two-and-a-half-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio from Chris Middleton. 100%. I will, I will take that all day. Now, he shot 51.1% on field goals, 40% on threes, 100% at the free throw line. We have 50, 40, 100 from Middleton this week. Yeah. Now, do you remember my bold predictions at the beginning of the year, what one of them was? No. <laughs> I'm on to my bold predictions that Chris Middleton was going to shoot 50% on catch and shoot threes. Uh oh. You want to take, just take a stab at it. He's not over yet, but just take a stab at where he's at. 46. 44%. Oh, dude, he's that shooting. one. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The one he had from Giannis where he caught it way up here and he had to bring it down and reset himself <laughs> and made it. That was when I started to think, like, all right. He might be back a little bit because that is a tough shot. That's not a normal NBA player shot. That's hard. He was cooking the Knicks a little bit. He was. To reset yourself completely, like when, it, when an NBA player catches it right here, I fully expect that to be automatic yep. if you're a shooter. But yep. for him to like, like I'm saying, like freaking grab it like he was LeBron driving to the rim and then reset himself and, and shoot it and make it, I was like, he gave a little fist pump too. So it was nice to see. His his effective field goal percentage on catch and shoot so far this year is sixty five percent. Damn. <laughs> I will talk about it after the last Knicks game, but the Bucks have some just ridiculous stats with Giannis, Dame, and Milton on the floor together. Yeah, that lineup but, is gonna be filthy. Absolutely, um, dude. Getting that lineup for thirty six minutes a game. That's oh my god! That's just gotta hurt your feelings. And I get that they're not all gonna be on the floor at the same time, but if it's it, uh, twenty of those thirty-six minutes, you get all three of them. Like, dude, you're you're just not stopping the Bucks' offense. That's gonna be really interesting, you know, with Middleton continuing to get better, Dame getting more comfortable. Like, we're like denying the inevitable here, but like us, you know, we play them in a couple weeks here. But the Bucks versus the Celtics, that's gonna be out. Man, I tell you what, if you're if strictly if you're a basketball fan, forget being a Bucks fan, forget being a Celtics fan. Like, if you're a goddamn Clippers fan or a freaking Utah Jazz fan, yeah. and if you're strictly just like a basketball guy, like that's gonna be good basketball. Let me throw this out there, just because I respect the way that they're currently playing defense, I'm excited to see the Bucks and the Timberwolves play. Yeah, Bucks and Timberwolves would be pretty something fun. I never thought I'd say in my lifetime. 
Yeah, I just hate Minnesota. It's Minnesota hate week, so I don't want to give them any credit. I mean, they've been bad at a lot of things for a long time. I want them to be bad still. (laughs) (laughs) For underrated performer, I went with Pat Connaughton. I'm going to continue to give his shooting some time. He he dealt with a pretty bad ankle injury for a month. So I'm going to give him some time to get his three-point shooting back. But the thing that made him my underrated performer was that he averaged 7.7 rebounds over the last three games. He had eight, eight, and seven rebounds in the last three games. So, you know, despite some slow shooting, he is still giving you all of the hustle that he's got. Yeah. So let's start with the Magic game. Uh, what stood out to you from the Bucks and the Magic last Thursday? Uh, so first of all, this feels weird, but I'm gonna give some credit to uh, the Wagner, the Wagner twins. They were absolutely cooking and carrying uh, the Orlando Magic. Uh, they were making impact plays on both ends of the court. I'm just going to say that, offense and defense. Um, want to say that uh, – blanking on his name – from Florida State, blocked Giannis. Oh, Jonathan name? Isaac. Jonathan Isaac. I knew his first name was Jonathan. I was like, I'm not gonna, just going to say Jonathan. I hey, just shout thing. out for him. Happy to see him back on the basketball court. Man, he's a, he's a great talent. A seven-foot guy at small forward. You can stretch the floor a little bit. The Magic have some – Interesting pieces. Uh, Imagine if they had kept Bull Bull. Man. And why the hell is Bull Bull, like, if he's that talented, not to, like, go on a tangent here, but, like, just fucking throw him on the floor for fucking 30 minutes and see what the hell happens. Jesus Christ. You can't have a guy that's 7'5 that could dribble and do all this cool stuff. And it's like, you know what? We're going to work on it in practice. Like, that's – no. That's stupid. I understand it a little bit, but, like, at this point, man, like just take out the damn training wheels and let him fly. Um, he's in uh, Phoenix, right? If I yeah. remember correctly, yeah. And Phoenix is just a mess. So you know, you put him on the floor with Kevin Durant, just let some shit happen, dude. Because Phoenix is just absolutely a mess right now. Um, but getting back to this Magic game, um, Giannis thirty-seven ten to six. I mean, <laughs> how many times? How many times am I going to say that, dude? In my life, I mean, the guy just is good. Uh, Dame and Chris had good games as well. Brooke Lopez had a very solid game. I wish we got a little bit more of the bench. I'm not going to lie. The bench has been pretty up and down. Um, I feel – lives and dies with Bobby almost. It does. And I feel like I can't, like, fully judge it because we do have players that make impacts and don't score. Like, Andre Jackson Jr., Right. he can come in the game. We saw it on Christmas Day. He made a really big impact by coming in, uh, picking up full court, and just really just injecting energy into, into the entire team. So we have players that have jobs and they do that well, but you know the scoring, you know, like you said, lives and dies with Bobby. Um, once we get Jay Crowder back, I think that'll change a little bit. Plus, mm-hmm. like you said, you know, we talked about we're going to be in the buyout market. I think strengthening that bench should be the main thing, right? Getting yep. and sorry to say it, but probably a backup point guard. Campaign is inconsistent enough, um, and when he's not hitting his threes, I mean, this team is. Uh, it's a liability. Pretty, pretty inconsistent on defense. When he's in there, I do not have a problem saying we have the worst defense in the NBA. He so when when campaign is in there, he needs to be making his shots to stay even with yep. what he'll he yep. loses on the defense. Yeah, because he's gonna give up eight to ten. He's gonna miss an assignment. He's gonna miss a rotation. He's gonna get bullied. He's probably gonna foul a couple of people. Yep. If he's not making his threes or pushing the pace and creating easier shots for people. everybody. He's kind of a lost cause, to be yeah, completely we need, honest. We, we need another point guard at that point. Yeah, and I think that would be one of my first things that I would look for as a, a point guard, right? Yeah, I hear um, you. 
but we definitely still have some interesting players. Like AJ Green is an interesting guy. I would like to see him maybe get a little bit more run in some of these games against like, you know, we're going to be playing the Cavs this week. I would like to see him against the Cavs, you know, against mm-hmm. their backups. I don't think the Cavs are a super deep team. So putting AJ Green in some some situations would be a good thing for us. He's um, dude, he comes in and he just starts splashing. I know. I love it, dude. I'm like, oh yeah, baby, we're about to see some some three-point shots. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Mike, yeah. We got white right-handed Michael Red out here. <laughs> right. Um, I respect the the Bucks perimeter defense. It was pretty good in this one. Uh, holding them to eight of thirty-three from behind the three-point line, so that was that was big for us. But really, other other than you know just noticing that we probably need to beef up the bench a little bit, that was my biggest takeaway. Also, can the Wagner twins like go to the West because I don't want to deal with them anymore? They seem to always play pretty good against us. They're they're just decent players. They um, they're smart. It is what it is. Yep. So. This game started off. It took 84 seconds for Giannis to be three for three from the field. Yeah. <laughs> he had six points in 84 seconds. <laughs> um, and then Damian Lillard hit a three. Two minutes into the game, the Bucks were up nine to two. The Bucks got up to 12 to two, and then in a 15 to five run by Orlando tied the game, and then we were off. Uh, Orlando was getting to the rim a lot. Uh, the Bucks were missing some jumpers. Orlando got up as many as nine in the second quarter. Uh, Giannis and Marjan Bochamp both dunked on Jonathan Isaac after Jonathan Isaac blocked Giannis twice. They did. That's called humble pie. Yeah, that's called getting your get back. Yeah. Um, the Bucks with 107, 107, with a minute seven. Uh, seconds got the lead back. Pat Connaughton assisted on a three, then got an offensive rebound, a putback, and an and one. That is what makes Pat Connaughton an underrated performer. His yep. impact plays like that. He was a, a one-man... 6-0 run uh, towards the end of this half. Like that. Two minutes in to the second half, the Bucks got up to about 7. Uh, the Bucks' offense was clicking, got the lead up to 12, got a size 15. They were up 9 heading into the fourth quarter. Um, Brooke Lopez dove on the floor from the loose ball. They felt the tremors in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, it's just good to see good to see even a guy like Brooke Lopez buy in to being willing to dive on the floor at 35 years old, one season removed from a back injury. Man. He's just leaving it out there and still the best back surgery ever. Uh, Orlando did get within two, and then their offense started to look really disjointed. So it's still a, still a young team over there, even though they are good. Mm. Still, a, still a couple years away from being in what I would call like a playoff team category, even though that's where their record has them right now. I agree with you. Um, the Bucks stretched the lead back up to 11. Magic got it back down to five, and then they just played the foul game at the end, uh, and the Bucks made their free throws to seal the win. Now, <clears throat> Magic, I'm going to say this again when we get to the Christmas Day game. The first half, the Magic did a good job of getting Brooke Lopez in the air. That's, that's what the Wagners were doing, was getting Brooke Lopez in the air. It opens up floaters and it opens up dump down passes. That's going to come back to be another discussion point. And then until like the last like six minutes of the game, Damian Lillard was not getting foul calls. It's something where like through the first two months of the season, he was one of the the leading foul call or the foul shooting players. And it feels like that number has gone down. I haven't verified that. So I can't say that that's the case, but that's what it feels like. Yeah. Uh, this game did, however, give the give the Bucks fifteen straight home Ws. I like that. Um, 
Lastly, on the subject of Jonathan Isaac, he wrote a book. Did you know that? No, I did not. Uh, I got it for Christmas, actually. Oh. Um, from my mom and her husband. Jonathan Isaac wrote a book. It was Why I Stand. So it's about the national anthem. I haven't read it yet, but yeah. It's on my reading list. Jonathan Isaac wrote a book. Good for him, man. Good for him. Okay. So, what's up to you from Bucks and Knicks game one from Saturday? Man, I'm just going to say this. You know, they they keep hyping up this Knicks defense, and I'm going to tell you right now, the Bucks offense, Knicks defense. Like, it's it's way too good. The Bucks offense, when it's clicking, is just insane. But Julius Randle poked the bear too many times. Yeah, dude, I don't know if, like, I'd, like, hate his face or, like, I just, like, don't like him in general, but I just don't like Julius Randle, like, just to be, like, general. Like, it has nothing to do with his game, which I think, like, his bag is ugly. I think he has a limited bag. Great Every- value, Joel Embiid. Yeah, he's uh, he's garbage. Um, But for the Bucks, Bobby had 23. Mikhail Beasley had 19. Chris Middleton had 20. Damian Lillard scored 19. Giannis had 28. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> stop, stop the presses, right? <laughs> Giannis was 11 of 17. Chris was 9 of 16. He was cooking. Um, Bobby, 9 of 14. Beasley, 7 of 13. 5 of 9 from uh, behind the arc. And the bench was much better in this one. 39 mm-hmm. points, 23 rebounds, four assists. They were 14 of 22 overall and six of 10 from three. <clears throat> and it's just night and day. Um, you go to the Magic game, they were, you know, 14 of 22 versus the Knicks, nine of 22 versus the Magic, six of 10 from three versus the Knicks, one of 11 versus the Magic. That was the bench. I mean, the inconsistencies with this bench is really kind of holding them back, in my opinion. Um, to to reaching that next level, you know, you I'm not that one, that, to get to your 160. Yes, well, not even that. I mean, like on a consistency aspect as well. Um, the reason that everybody's picking the Celtics is because you know what you're getting from this guy. You know what you're getting from this guy. Their bench players are being consistent. So the thing that is holding the Bucks back from you know everybody like picking them is the bench consistency, in my opinion. Um, you know what Dame's going to do. You know what Giannis is going to do. Chris Middleton's getting back. Brooke Lopez is going to block shots. And if he scores 20 points, you better fucking hope Jesus is on your sideline. <laughs> you're done. Ah, that's, that's big four bucks right there. <laughs> um, overall, the buck shot 52% uh, from the field, 50% from three. We whooped that ass on the, on the boards. Uh, we really spanked them on the boards. We were the more physical team in this one. Um, the points in the paint was pretty even. And the bucks were out and running. Uh, the Knicks play a slower pace overall, but the Bucks getting out and running really fits their play style better. I wish they would do it more. Um, but you want the fast break numbers? Yeah, I, I mean that. I mean we had we had 22 fast break and they had 11. So yeah. Um, I mean I'll talk about it again when we get to the, the Christmas Day game because it kind of flipped it flipped again there. But yeah, in my opinion, the Bucks should be running a little bit more. I know the half court. I'll tell you this. This is the last thing I'll say before I hand it over to you. With Chris Middleton getting back and Dane being the player that he is, the half-court offense, this team is built better for the playoffs, uh-huh. in my opinion. Uh-huh. Now, everybody's going to be freaking out because, you know, that's what we do in this state, apparently. Come watch us. We'll we'll help you remain uh, level-headed. Um, but 
we went through the regular seasons and we're just destroying these records and we're hitting three pointers and we're doing all this fun stuff. And, you know, they're crossing their legs, sitting on the bench and they're taking great photos. And that's great and all. And I love uh-huh. all those moments. I'm not, I don't want to take any of those moments away, uh-huh. but this team right now as currently constructed. If you get a Jay Crowder back and, you know, maybe add a, a veteran in the bio market, right. This team right now is better suited for playoff basketball. Mm-hmm. So when I hear people like Kendrick Perkins say dumbass shit like, "Oh God, the Knicks," I trust the Knicks more than I trust the Bucks. I'm like, who the hell hired this high cholesterol fuck? Oh man, it's what like okay, it takes like it takes like six months for me to be like, okay, like okay, he's not a bad analyst. Like okay, he's not bad. Like. I can agree with some of the things that he says. And then it's like he drops a bomb like the 76ers would beat the Bucks in a seven-game series. And it's like, okay, yep, we're back to dumb Kendrick Perkins. It's just ridiculous. You think Tyrese – I mean, Tyrese Maxey's nice, bro. But, like, yeah. bro, you are really disrespecting Damian Lillard by saying that. Think about that. Tobias Harris is not better than Chris Middleton either. If you want to call Giannis and Embiid a wash – I don't think it is, but I will hear you on that. If you want to call Tyrese Maxey and Damian Lillard a wash, that's why I think you're a fucking idiot. And then, like you said, you go down the list, right? You're like, okay, another next player. Uh, nope, that's still the Bucks. You go to the next player. That's still the Bucks. I mean, come on now. What are we doing here? Dude, I literally saw a video. I told you about it. I told you about the video that I saw. Joel Embiid is fucking around at the top of the key. He's like jab step, pump fake, jab step, pump fake, pump yeah. fake, jab step. Kelly Ubre is standing yeah. wide open in the corner. He literally started jogging back on defense while yeah, Joel Embiid still has the ball on offense. Fuck that's that. Terrible. Yeah. Oh, Nick Nurse, Nick Nurse. Look at this shit. This is garbage basketball. Joel Embiid has the highest usage rate in the NBA by far. Yeah. And this looks like a team that cares about the regular season, not the postseason. 100%. I like that. I like that. Ooh, Nick Nurse. We should have Nick Nurse. Shut up. The the Philadelphia, their record is not even better than the Bucks. Yeah. Firstly. We beat and them and then you see shit like that happening. Dude, I feel bad for Kelly Oubre because he, he got some buckets. He did it against the Bucks in the opening night. Like, yeah. I mean, P.J. Tucker wanted out. Nobody's having fun there besides Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey, who is only having fun because they got rid of James Harden. Yep. Nobody else is having fun on that roster except for Joel Embiid. Ooh, but he's first in the MVP ladder. That team's going to be in danger of getting beat in the first round, depending on what did I say to you when we were playing Xbox, bro? What did I say to you? Embiid knows he's not winning a title. So he's going to try to rack up these scoring titles and MVPs, bro. I is 100% how it looks, how it feels, and it just elevates what you just said, that they care about the regular season. Because he knows he's he's been trashing closeout games. Look at the numbers. People always want to come at Giannis about this and that, and he has no bag, and he's running dunk man. But you want to talk about how good Embiid is on offense. Where the hell is he when you need him? I mean – him and James Harden were cooking in the in the regular season. I was actually a little bit worried about them, to be completely honest with you. As a, yeah. in a two-man game, when they get you in a two-man game, yeah. they were pretty good. Yeah. And Embiid can shoot a lot of foul shots. I mean, he just did it the other day where, what did he shoot, like 18 foul shots or whatever. But come on, man. I mean, and I'm not complaining about foul shots because, no, you know, historically. Yeah, when you, Dame, get them. 
Yeah, when, historically, when you look at it, the guys who score the most, they're usually the more aggressive ones, yeah. and they're usually shooting the most foul shots. Right. MJ, I mean, Barkley's back in the day. I mean, Shaquille we'll Harden's MVP year. Yeah, I mean, just look at look at just look at historically, right? So you can't yeah. complain about foul shots, and I'm not saying that, but like Embiid <laughs> does some extra shit, bro. Like, let's, let's call it what yeah. it. So, on this this first matchup, looking at the first half, the Bucks are living with the mid range. By the Knicks, they're going to continue to do so. The yep. Bucks have shown it, and I've said it. They don't care if if Jalen Brunson scores 30, 35, 40, 45 points. If the Bucks win, they don't care. They're going to live with that mid-range. They're going to live with floaters. They want a title by doing it. They're going to continue living with that. Now, the team's traded threes for a while, and then you brought up the bench, and this is a thing where the Bucks had a lineup of campaign, um, Ajax, Chris Middleton, Bobby Portis, and Brooke Lopez, and they kept the scoring going. So they were able to keep the scoring going. That is a big deal. Bobby mm-hmm. Portis was controlling the rebounds and scoring. Julius Randle activated Bobby Portis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it was it was fun to watch because Bobby Portis and Julius Randle were going back and forth. Julius Randle was an all-star last year, and he's going, quote-unquote, toe-to-toe with a six-man-of-the-year candidate. Uh, that's, that's what he did. I mean, and Julius, Julius Randle Randall's- brought that on himself. Julius Randle's supposed to be an all-star, right, for that team. He's supposed to be one of the cornerstone players, you know, with Jalen Brunson. And honestly, I agree with what Becky Hammond's saying. You can't win a title if your best player is a small guy. I 100% agree with that. Mm. And the Knicks' best player is a small guy. Um, So when you really look at it, man, Bobby Portis, I would rather take Bobby Portis because he's an actual tough guy, not a fake tough guy like Julius Mm Randle. And he's a better three-point shooter in my mind. Like, Julius Randle can shoot. But again, like he's great value, Joel Embiid. He's going to have some games where he shoots like twenty nine percent. Yeah. What's up, James? Um, <clears throat> it's it, and and then the attitude part of it is like Julius Randle. He wants to talk shit for himself. Bobby yeah. Portis wants to do it because he wants to get the crowd into it. Yeah. So that said, the Bucks in the first half. Uh, Malik Beasley had thirteen points. Giannis had eleven. Bobby Portis had thirteen and nine. So. Getting into the second half, uh, Damian Lillard, three, put the lead back to 10 for the Bucks, even though the Knicks had a 6-0 run to end the first half. Um, <laughs> I said this. This happened in the third quarter. Giannis being an off-ball offensive player is a nightmare for opponents. Yeah. Whether it's a screener or that move where they put him in the corner and have him flash to the ball, it's a nightmare. You don't have – there's not enough guys to defend it. There's not enough guys on the floor. There's five guys on the floor. That's not enough. It's just it's just not enough. And this is, we're going to talk about this when we get into the second Knicks game is that everybody's so worried about what the Bucs lost on defense that they're not focusing enough on what the Bucs are doing on offense. Good. And I, I think it's fair to parallel that to the Packers even. Yeah. Everybody's so focused on the defense that they're missing how special the offense has been. Dude, hey. We said it, man. In two years, bro. Don't be shocked when Jordan Love is leading the MVP candidacy in two years from right now. That's all I'm saying. That's and I'm and saying. don't be shocked if two months from now the Bucks are averaging 135 points a game. Yeah, and going on a 12-game win streak. <laughs> yeah, again. Um, so halfway yeah. through the third quarter, the Bucks got their lead as high as 18. Uh, the Knicks got the lead down to 13 
And then the crowd started getting into it. And then Griff called a timeout and their momentum. So shout out to Adrian Griffin for making a good coaching decision because I don't think he gets credit for them when they happen. So I wanted to give him credit for one. Uh, Bobby Portis ended a 7-0 run by the Knicks. And then the next possession, Pat Connaughton hit a three and the lead was way back up to 16. Yay. <laughs> so the Bucks did that. Uh, the Bucks went on an 11-0 run in the fourth quarter. Chris Middleton was hitting some dirty moves. Chris Middleton was cooking in the fourth quarter. He was. He was hitting, dude, he's hitting like behind the back dribbles, step back, turn, fade away. Like, dude. Bro, he cooked Devo on one of them, dude. That was <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like the circle, the circle of Chris Middleton, where it's like people talk shit about him and then he turns into prime MJ. Like, dude, that's what he was on in the fourth quarter. Yeah. It was like he was doing he was doing like shoot around moves in game. Yeah. And it's like it it happens kind of slowly, like it's not crazy fast movements, but it's just like he already knows what he's doing on his move and you're not stopping it. Agreed. Uh that that version of Chris Middleton is super exciting and super fun to watch. Uh Giannis kept it going, Bobby Portis kept it going, the Bucks got the lead as high as 22. Now here's my two big things, and I'm actually gonna use this to transition into the next game. <coughs> is the fourth quarter, Jalen Brunson, scoreless. But R.J. Barrett had 10 of his 13 points in the fourth quarter. Now, that's one of the big differences that I noticed between the Saturday game and the Christmas Day game. So the it's not so much the Brunson or Randall part of it, but it's R.J. Barrett. Now, I believe R.J. Barrett to be one of the more overrated players in the league, but still he does do things to put him in the category of people, you know, the category that people think he deserves to be in, where I think he should be like a tier below. But there's, there's games like this one where people are like, okay, you know, RJ Barrett deserves to be in the star category, which I don't think he does, but he, he played like a star on Christmas. Mm. So on Saturday, RJ Barrett was five for 17 from the field. He had 13 points and 10 of them came in the fourth quarter when the bucks were leading by double digits. This game, he had 21 points on 8 of 14 shooting. It's a big difference. Yep. So that is, first of all, the Knicks emphasized points in the paint. He had 72 points in the paint. And now, to, to tie back again to what I said during the Magic game, the Knicks also did a good job of getting Brook Lopez in the air. And Hartenstein was able to take advantage of that, and he was just able to get a bunch of dump-off dunks because Brook Lopez was contesting floaters. So all the guys had to do was kind of look like they were going to go shoot a floater and either go up and then just dish it around or throw a bounce pass to Hartenstein, and they were able to get some dunks that way. So that, they were able to get to the paint. But when when this happens, and I want to find some examples of this to talk about it, is when those plays are happening and Brook is stepping up, that's when the weak side defender needs to crash down and cut that pass off. Yeah. And what it's going to do is it's going to force the ball to the three-point line. So we're going to have to have some weak side defense. And I'll say I think it should be Malik Beasley more than him being an on-ball defender because they put Dame in that spot, and it was hard for him to – he wasn't getting to the the down recovery in time. I think that Beasley is a more active defender, so I agree with you. Yeah. So, you know, you need to get down to cut off that pass for the layups and dunks. And then when that pass goes out to the three-point line, you have to close out on that corner three. Yeah. That's something where the Bucks defense is going to have an opportunity to improve, actually. 
Yep. Is if they can if they can make those rotations and contest them. <clears throat> so that's that. Then the Bucks started really slow shooting. First half, they were 39.6 on field goals, 27% on threes. They scored 51 points. That's a bad half. Yeah, it is. Second half, 55.3% on field goals, 35% on threes, 71 points. That is the Bucks of this year. So the Bucks had a bad half of shooting, not great defensively, and lost to last year's five seed on the road by seven points. Yep. Seven points. I'm going to add a little bit more context on there, if you don't mind. Do it. So, in the first game, uh, which was uh, December 23rd, um, the Knicks scored 48 points in the paint. Then you go to Christmas, 72 points. That's plus 24 points in the paint, right? Then you go to the fast break, and this is why I was talking about it. The Bucks got a minus 10 in their fast break numbers, and the Knicks got a plus 11 or 12, sorry. 12 in their fast break numbers. So right there, you're looking at plus 36 points for the Knicks from the first game to the second game. So, I mean, really, <laughs> you look at those two areas because we held them We held them pretty good on the three-point line. They made 8, eight of 26 on Christmas, 9 of 29 a uh, couple days prior to that on Saturday, uh, which, by the way, it was kind of weird that they played both games at 11 a.m. Uh, I thought that Christmas was I get. Because yeah. I do usually stagger the Christmas games, but Saturday, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that just made zero sense to me, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> gave me something to do Saturday afternoon. Just, sure. I guess. Uh, but, you know, the rebounding, we held them to 41 rebounds both times. The Bucks were nine less on rebounds. The assists, they got 10 more assists. And I think that, that all comes off of the points in the paint. Mm. So, yeah. the paint defense is really the big key here. Also, the scoring was not very even. You look at Giannis, Dame, and Chris, they scored 88 of the team's 122 points. That means the rest of the team only scored 34 <laughs> points, dude. 88 out of three dudes is wild. And, you know, like oh I said, 34 God. points from the rest of the team. 14 of that is from Brooke Lopez. And then another 12 of that is from Bobby Portis. So, that's 26 of the 34. So, there's like five guys that scored eight points. Yeah. So to lose this game by seven, like we said, context, we had a seven game winning streak. We had a nine game winning streak versus the Knicks. It's not the end of the world guys. It's Christmas day. Okay. We still have the entire month of January and February to really figure some shit out. I think it really starts to ramp up in March. So we got the next two months and it's a leap year. So we get an extra day in, in February. Oh, so uh, it's just we have plenty of time. No need to freak out. It's not time to hit the panic button or anything like that. And, you know, for ESPN, and I do agree that the Bucks defense at times is very worrisome. I'm not going to, like, sit here and lie about it. But for ESPN to be like, how bad are the Bucks on defense? Like, we didn't just smack the shit out of New York two days prior. What are we doing here? Like, we didn't. We're catering, we're catering to New York is what we're doing here. I know. And, like, I get that Stephen A. Smith is a Knicks fan, but, like, for Kendrick Perkins, who, like, his best years were in Boston, like, it's kind of gross, in my opinion. Um, but it is what it is. The Bucks went 2-1 this week. I'll take a 2-1 week every single week. Uh, means we're doubling our win total from every week. So, if we're getting two wins every week, I'm fine. There's, there's way too much concern 
for for people that think the Bucks are somehow like this ultra vulnerable team when they're literally the two seed right now, right? And they know what they need to fix. Like Boston, they have the one seed, but they don't have like something that they can say that is going to take them to the next level. Yeah. The Bucks, the Bucks know what it is, and they're going to continue working on it. And they know what it is in the first third of the season. Yep. And once they can fix that side of the ball, they know that that's going to probably make them the best team in the NBA. I'm just going to say this, James. I know you're still listening. Don't hate me. The Bucks are the only team in the East with two superstars. I am not giving Jalen Brown superstar. I'll, Jason Tatum I'll, is much more superstar than Jalen Brown. I'll call Jalen Brown elite, which is like one tier below. Yep, and I agree with that. I'm not saying that they're the only team with two really crazy good players. I do think that Boston overall structured roster is better than the Bucs right now. Uh, they're deeper. Um, they're, Derek White is playing out of his mind. There's no that doubt. guy. Can he just stop, dude? He's always around the damn ball. Him and Horford, dude. Horford, Porzingis is playing really, really well right now. I mean, that team is the team is humming. But the Bucks are the only team in the East with two superstar guys. I'm just gonna say that. Yeah. So. With that as your base, and you figure out the defense, and you're getting a guy like Chris Middleton coming back, Buck Celtics is going to be insane, bro. I'm going to keep harping on it, but that shit's going to be awesome. Let's talk about this. Now, again, we've said this a bunch of times, that people are only focusing on what the Bucks lost on defense. Mm-hmm. We are not talking enough about how crazy good the Bucks' offense has been, <clears throat> and, and we're going to lay it out. That's fair. So James said the only question is situational, and that comes from Missoula. That's totally fair. That's, That's fair. Totally I'm fair. Not upset at that. And, and they have time to figure it out as well. We are we are nowhere near playoffs yet. We are like I said, we're about a third of the way through the season. Yeah, the Celtics still have time to improve as well. So exactly, and they're going to be another team um, that's going to be active on buyouts. Yep, they're going to look to add some depth. They could definitely use another big man. I know. I was thinking about this when we were talking about point guards, but I'm just saying Malcolm Brogdon is probably going to get bought out, and I know he hates Milwaukee, but, dude, would he not be the perfect bench point guard for the Bucs? Yeah. Oh, my God. Just just come home, guy. Let, let, let go of whatever the hell happened. Yeah. You want to talk about how Milwaukee's racist and you were playing in Boston? Like, let's be real. Dude. Come on. Come on. So – just want to throw this out there before we get back into this. Uh, Herb Cole died. What? Yeah. Oh, man, that's sad for Bucks Nation, man. Yeah, and for Badgers, too. I mean, yeah. Maybe. Hey, I get it. He kept the Bucks in Milwaukee, bro. He did. He did. He, 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 like, set up this future that's happening with our kids right now. I mean, yeah. us, too, but, like. Our kids being able to bring our kids to games, you like he he secured that for us. Yeah, man. yeah. Yep. Shout out Herb Cole. All right. <clears throat> so on this offense, the three man lineup of Damian Lillard, Chris Middleton, Giannis have played seven hundred and forty three possessions together this season. Yeah. <laughs> Their offensive rating is one twenty eight point three, which is ridiculous. By the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's the 99th percentile of the NBA. <laughs> They're a 111 
96.5 defensive rating, which is pretty solid. That puts them in the 81st percentile, which puts them in the top 19%. I like it. And plus 16.8 net rating, again, puts them in the 98th percentile. Oh, so they're good. Top 2% of, <laughs> of trios. Now, they're scoring 113.1 points per 100 possessions in half-court offense. Telling you. That is stupid, dude. That's the 100th percentile. So they are literally the most effective trio on half-court offense per 100 possessions. This team is so just built for playoff basketball, dude. Literally it's, built for playoff basketball. They you the Bucks see it. literally took their biggest weakness, which was half-court offense, yep. and it is now the best trio in the NBA. Yep, it's now their biggest strength. It is literally the best trio in the NBA in the half-court offense. And a thing that you don't have to worry about as much if you're dominating in the half-court and scoring literally more than every time you're down the court <laughs> is you don't have to worry as much about the fast break, right? And that's mm-hmm. been an Achilles heel. The fast break defense has been an Achilles heel for the Bucks for you know a few years now. Yep, and it still is at times. but It yeah. is. But, you know, and I think, you know, the context of that is Brooke Lopez is old and yeah. not very fast. Um, and then Giannis is the other seven footer and that, that's the advantage for the Bucks. They play two seven footers, right? And Giannis is constantly driving to the rim. So he's as far away as you physically can be from defending the rim on the other side. So yep. that's the problem with that. But when you're scoring like this in the half court and you're dominating, you know, th- they're made for the playoffs, dude. So like everybody that's like talking out of their ass right now, please just shut up. Yeah. Uh, James said, no hate on Mazzullo, though. This is his second year as a head coach, period. Not just as Boston head coach, but as an NBA head coach. He's learning. He's not as bad as some people make it out to be. He's just more calm than most coaches are and more player-oriented. Jake, who does that sound like? Yeah, that sounds like our coach, except if you take the second year and take it his first year as a head coach. Yeah, so honestly, when you think about Boston and Milwaukee and you think about head coaches matching up, pretty even to me. Yeah, yep. Griffin's been coaching for a long time on the bench, and he has championship experience, so he kind of understands a little yep. bit what it takes. And I don't know Missoula's whole history, but it's his first year as a head coach, man. That's a whole different set of responsibilities. I'm a little bit tired of people acting like coaches being player-oriented is a, somehow a negative. I'm really just sick and tired of everybody being like, let's just fire him. Like, dude, you don't just find good coaches. This can go for all all sports okay Mm -hmm. you don't just find good dcs or good managers in baseball or Or gms they don't just grow on trees people yeah they gotta experience is a real thing just like a player they have to go through their lumps and they have to learn shit too Uh maybe i should have handled this differently maybe i should have talked to them before i did this i should have called a timeout in this situation that's stuff that they have to go through as well Uh so you have to have patience for them in this way too and you sitting on your couch eating your fucking Doritos, thinking you know better, just don't, okay? We're not doing this anymore. My thing with, with people not liking the, the player-oriented coaches is that is awfully condescending to assume that your coach should have more collective basketball knowledge than the entire roster. You're right. Dude, you have players that have good basketball IQ. You're talking about the top 75 players. You have two of them. Why would you not want their input on basketball? 
Right. Why then, would you want the coach to be the only one giving input? Chris Milton is a really fucking smart basketball player. Why would you not want to know what he's thinking? <laughs> Brooke Lopez has been around the game of basketball for a long time. It's it's one of those things where, like, why would you not want to know what your players are thinking? They are smart players. Yeah. So I, I can't get past that, that people think that that's somehow a negative thing to be open to input from your players, just like the Bobby Portis thing. Yeah. You don't think that Bobby Portis understands momentum and energy? <laughs> we talked about it two weeks ago. He, he can come into a game where you're trailing by eight and make you feel like you're up by eight. Yeah, he really can. Like that, he's got that energy to him. Yeah. You don't want to know what he's thinking? I, I, I just seriously, I can't wrap my head around that, that people think that the coach should just be this dictator who tells Giannis to stay on the bench when Giannis wants to go back in the game. I just, I don't understand either, dude. <laughs> I seriously. These guys are smart. Basketball IQ is a real thing. Why would you not want to tap into it? Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no way where it's where you say that a player-oriented coach is a bad thing. There's just no, that's no, no. Well, no. Why do you think former players make good coaches? Say facts on. Why that. do you think players like former players who were coaches? Also, facts. like I. Just a little bit of critical thinking. Seriously, please. You don't think that uh, any of LeBron's coaches ever listened to him? I mean, he was basically coaching the Cavs for a few years there. Let's let's call it what it is. Before Ty Lue really took the reins over. Ty Lue, former player. Doc Rivers, former player. Adrian Griffin, former player. Jason Kidd, former player. Like, you could just roll down the list of coaches who are former players that have good teams. Yeah. It, a guy like Eric Spolstra is rare. Yeah. Extremely rare. Yeah, that's why it's a great story, right? Exactly. So I've heard about it a couple times. Um, yeah, James James is talking about an experience where his coach trusted him too. It's there has to be give and take here and it and it builds trust because obviously you 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 go through these discussions. And that's why they had a bunch of the players talking to the coaching candidates before they made their hire, because you want to build that trust. Mm-hmm. So you also not just from the you know the coach wanting to trust the players, but then you want your players to trust the coach. Where it's like, I hear your input, but I'm still the one to make the decision. Yeah. And then your players be able to respect that. That you just, that just doesn't happen in a day, and it doesn't happen by by just laying it down and being like, what I say goes. Exactly. I, I want guys that are on this team, especially when you're looking at the three, the three of Dame, Giannis, and, and Middleton, to be able to give their input and have it be heard. I'm 100 with that. Okay, so that said, starting tonight, the Bucks have three games in the next week. They are in Brooklyn tonight. They play Cleveland on Friday, and then they're back home against Indiana on Monday. I'm gonna say a three and all week from the Bucks. I don't see any of these three teams stopping the Bucks unless guys are missing games, which doesn't seem like it's gonna be the case. Uh, I'm also going to say 3-0, and and I'm going to say that every Indiana Pacers game from here on out is going to be circled, and it's going to mean something. Uh, we play them back-to-back games, by the way, so uh, expect some ass whoopings. 
Uh, expect Giannis to go for 40-plus until further notice. Against yeah, the he's going to give a couple shoulders in uh, into Miles Turner's chest as well, so really looking forward Legally, to Legally, too. It's not even like he's doing it to be dirty. Like, he's literally just that fucking strong. Yeah, he's just going to run through you, and you just you better have your, your bulletproof vest on because – He's just going to run and dunk. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Jake, I'll be back on Friday night. With Simon and Bryant talk about the Packers win over the Panthers and preview their matchup with the Vikings. And then we'll be back again next Wednesday to talk about the Badger Bowl game, Badgers in Iowa, and those three Bucks games. I will see you next Wednesday, the introduction, the first day that we're going to have our new intro on the show. So oh. that with our new sponsorship for next year. So uh, looking forward to that and, and thankful for having that. So all that said, I will see you Friday night. Yep. Hope everybody had a great Christmas and uh, go Bucks. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.